And good evening or good morning or good afternoon, whatever the case may be, wherever you are around this rotating, very hot globe, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when literally now anything can happen. I presume most of you who are listening tonight um, are familiar with the extraordinary soap opera that un- unfolded a couple, three weeks ago around the submersible called the Titan in its attempted dive on the ruins of the Titanic, which is something like 12,500 feet beneath the surface of the uh, North Atlantic Ocean, uh, kind of off Newfoundland. Anyway, um, there is still continuing echoes of that story which gripped the planet like none other that I can remember in recent history that wasn't a disaster, a war, a mutiny, you know, an invasion, whatever. This was one of those on the edge of your chairs unfolding stories that literally had a beginning, a clarion call of emergency, a countdown, a end moment when if the occupants of the Titan were somewhere grounded on the bottom of the ocean, running out of air. In other words, the story had every aspect to make people in an incredibly blasé age literally hang on the edge of their seats. And that I don't think, nor does my guest tonight, uh, someone who's been on the other side of midnight many times, but not for a very long time, much too long, uh, Chris Knowles, who was our symbolic expert and we'll get into what that means when we uh when we get into uh chris's background anyway um before we get to our main subject i want to put a few connecting dots in place um if you go to the other side of midnight you're new to the show go to the other side of midnight look for tonight's banner which says at the very top uh the other side of midnight.com was the titan a deliberate Ritual Sacrifice to the Titans with our guest there, Christopher Knowles. Click on that banner. That will take you to uh, uh, the guest page. And under the guest page, under that banner, you'll see two names, mine and Christopher's. Click on mine. Click on Richard. That will take you to the Radio with Pictures section of the website. And I have some news items that very importantly are connected to what we're going to talk about primarily tonight, which is the developing, accelerating, expanding mysteries around the sinking of this bizarre private enterprise submersible, which uh, should not have sunk. And that's a very long, complicated three-hour story. So stay with us. You're going to find out some things tonight that I guarantee you, you have never heard before certainly in connection with this still developing global saga. But before we get to that, go to my first item there in Radio with Pictures. Um, The engineering community, scientists are developing solar cell technology now that should be shockingly easy and even more important, cheap to produce 
as rapidly, it's quoted in the article, as printing a newspaper. Now, why is this important? Well, here in the great American Southwest for the last uh, couple of weeks, we have had record, record temperatures. Today, the temperature exceeded 102 degrees, and I'm at uh, 6,500 feet. We're somewhat higher here than Denver, over a mile high. And it's predicted, based on charts and weather patterns and highs and lows and the stationary high over the southwest, that this is going to continue for days and days and days. And obviously, the impact on air conditioning, um, particularly in states like Texas, where there are people dying of the heat, there is an extraordinary uh, political situation vis-a-vis -vis the independent uh, state-run power company, which is uh, kind of separate from the grid. <clears throat> and it has been said over and over again this summer that the only reason that uh, millions of Texans are not being browned out, meaning that their access to power for air conditioning is being curtailed, is because they have had a rising um, commerce and industry of alternative power, wind, windmills, and solar. And given that this last couple weeks is in terms of global record keeping and forensics in the way of climatology, which goes back through strata and ice uh, corings and all that to look at temperatures hundreds of thousands of years ago, what we're going through right now are temperatures on Earth worldwide because we wired the world and by a satellite, any sensor anywhere on the planet can be interrogated and its data is uplinked and recorded. So we have really a global temperature map and everywhere in the world, the average temperature has exceeded anything recorded in the geological record for the last 125,000 years. That is absolutely bizarre. That is absolutely shocking. So the antidote in the short term is making lots more, stop putting lots of carbon dioxide from fossil fuel plants into the atmosphere. A longer term solution, the one that I'm frankly increasingly enamored with, which will solve the problem in a relatively short period of time, I'm talking like uh, you know, a decade, uh, if past history is prologue, but which will permanently solve the problem until, you know, the fossil fuel CO2 has been um, reabsorbed in the terrestrial sinks for carbon dioxide, which is the only way really to get it out of the atmosphere unless you begin looking at very incredibly expensive uh, sequestration technologies to basically capture it and then store it underground in ways that it can never be released, certainly in the, the projected timeline of human civilization. The other alternative, which is really amazingly cool and has been researched at some length uh, by MIT and is actually, I believe, being looked at seriously by this White House, is basically creating a space-based alternative that will shield the Earth from increasing solar insulation, thereby dropping the global temperatures, thereby bringing the equation of climate back into 
equilibrium. And all that is incredibly complicated, incredibly expensive, and incredibly politically um, contentious. But we're going to be dealing with it in the next couple, three weeks. I'm working on getting some really amazing guests who have developed through MIT a technology which um, Elon Musk, if he so choose to add to a list of, you know, to-do things, uh, basically keeping the earth from roasting alive, uh, it would not be beyond the purview of his currently envisioned starship technology. One more reason to be looking really carefully at what Musk is really up to, and I don't mean Twitter. Anyway, the relationship of this to tonight's show um, will be apparent very soon. Item number two, uh, we are off to another extraordinarily interesting and hopefully predictive soap opera vis-a-vis the moon. Um, Yesterday, Friday, uh, Indian time, the Indian government launched its third attempt to uh, uh, go to the moon with an unmanned robotic uh, mission. And its second attempt, called Chandrayaan-3, and Chandrayaan in Sanskrit means moon vessel or moon ship. Chandrayaan-3 is going to the moon. We'll get there in about a month. It's taking the slow boat to China. And they're going to attempt to land another unmanned uh, lander and rover while keeping in orbit something called a propulsion module, which only has one experiment. I will explain what all this means in great detail next Saturday. We are tentatively looking at another show about the moon. And I think if they will listen, and I've been told by sources that they are listening in India to the other side of midnight, I'm going to lay out a blueprint for how, as opposed to all the other private missions and non-Russian, Chinese, and U.S. missions, which have tried it and have crashed, I'm going to lay out a recipe, a a to-do list, a a mission profile for how the Indians, if they're listening, can safely get this unmanned spacecraft down to the surface of the moon again at the South Pole. And all of that will come in great detail next Saturday in our current uh, projected planning. What does this all have to do with the Titan? Well, these missions are all precursors to the ultimate goal of uh, Elon Musk, which is to send private astronauts into lunar orbit at the end of next year and actual NASA astronauts, because he has the uh, contract with NASA to develop a lunar lander version of the Starship to basically take the Artemis astronauts down to the surface of the moon in 2025 in um, Artemis 3. All of this could be imperiled by what began to surface in the extensive, overwhelming coverage regarding the sinking of the Titan submersible a couple, three weeks ago. Because a lot of people started writing about, well, if it's not safe to have private enterprise missions to the Titanic, you know, to Uh, 12,000 feet plus down, is it safe to have space tourism, including Musk proposing to take astronauts, private astronauts, artists 
on the first around the moon mission for Musk to and from the moon. And that, of course, is the umbrella that kind of lies over and beyond our discussion tonight vis-a-vis this private submersible, because one of the, shall we say, suspicious things is the connection of an incredibly difficult private project, i.e. diving 13,000 feet down on the Titanic, and something which technologically is much simpler and much safer inherently, which is uh, private tourist missions to the space station or to the moon itself. They are not the same. The risk levels are absolutely not the same as our other factors, which we will get into uh, at some length later on this morning. Item number three is apropos of this. It turns out that out of uh, 90 attempted dives by the Titan submersible uh, developed by this uh, private company called OceanGate, it's almost like they were preloaded for the conspiratorial theme of, of the uh, evening, you know, Watergate, um, uh, OceanGate, any gate is now a political crisis and uh, uh, catastrophe and, uh, uh, you know, basically something that one does not want to be involved in. Anyway, OceanGate, the, the founding corporation, tried 90 times, it turns out, according to the public record, to dive on the Titanic and were successful only on 13, which, of course, raises in my mind, why were those five so-called passengers or explorers who paid the equivalent of a quarter million dollars apiece to go and die. Why did they even deign to get aboard? What convinced them to become sacrificial lambs, metaphorically speaking? If you take a look at the technology in the background and the controversy over the company and the head of the company, Stockton Rush, and the background of the uh, five people who died in the Titan, none of it makes any sense. None, none, none. So I began looking, and I called up Chris uh, Knowles, who, of course, is a very interesting individual. Let me get into uh, Chris's background here. He is the uh, author of the Eagle Award-winning Our Gods Wear Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes. He is also co-author of The Complete X-Files, Behind the Series, The Myths, and the Movies. <clears throat> and he wrote a while ago, The Secret History of Rock and Roll, the Mysterious Roots of Modern Music. He's been the associate editor and columnist for the five-time Eisner Award-winning comic book artist magazine, as well as writer and reviewer for the UK magazine, Classic Rock. Chris has appeared on ABC's 2020, VH1's Metal Evolution, and many other radio shows, including Man Cow in the Morning, National Public Radio, and The Voice of America. He's also appeared in several documentaries, such as Wonder Woman, Daughter of Myth and the Man, The Myth Superman, and he was invited to lecture on science fiction, mysticism, and mythology at the legendary Esalen Institute at Big Sur, California in 2008 and 2009. And he regularly blogs on extraordinarily interesting, if esoteric, topics on his blog called The Secret Sun. So without further ado, Chris, come on down. Hey. Hey. Too long, too long. I'm here. Super. Okay, let me finish kind of the wind-up on this. 
because this is so amazingly interesting that you and I, not having talked for, what, at least, what, a year or two? Something like that. We both, we both have independently come to the same idea about this international soap opera. So, item number four. Who were the passengers who, you know, forked over a quarter mil to go and die? They are listed in item number four. And when you get into their background, it gets even, even weirder. There is a common, if bizarre, I'm going to say it, extraterrestrial thread running through, throughout this astonishing and totally uncalled for disaster. Item number five. I'll tell you what, let's leave uh, number five till we get into the conversation. So let me ask you point blank, Chris, what made you, the hairs on the back of your neck, stand up as this was unfolding a few weeks ago and go, wait a minute, there's something really wrong here with the conventional coverage of this story? Well, first of all, it reminded me, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Radio Days by Woody Allen. Yes. And the girl was trapped on the well. It was just that kind of thing. But just the fact that it was all centered around the solstice was very strange to me. And the fact that, like, none of these people seem like real people. Um, there's something very off about them. Something just feels off. Um, you know, I've been looking to Stockton Rush, and uh, his history is very weird. I mean, he's a person. He obviously exists. <laughs> this, this, this was the CEO of the company, Ocean Gate, which contracted with various independent suppliers, put together the uh, carbon fiber, the end caps, the, the window, uh, and put the whole submersible together as part of a 10 or 15 year effort, if you can believe what you read in, in various uh, uh, reportage. Which I, I don't necessarily, I'm not in, in, you know, inclined to believe what's being reported. There's something very off about this. Um, maybe not, I mean, there are things going on that have been going on the past few years, especially that just don't seem real. They seem very staged and they present people that seem like actors to me that seem like almost uh, archetypes. Uh, you know, we have this Stockton rush and then we have this uh, Paul Henry, uh, Najolet, uh Hamish Harding and Shazada Dawood. It reminds me of, um, I mean, not to be Clark novel for some reason. I mean, it's just, the, the cast of characters here are, are they don't seem entirely real. Uh, and the fact that- Yeah, but wait, 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 wait. They're all real people because you can find a million bios all over the net and news That's sources. not my point. That's a, the, the point is, is that there's something unreal about this. There is something- Yeah, but that's different from saying that the people themselves are not real. Well, I did. I did just say that the people are real. <laughs> okay. I, I'm just talking about the way this whole thing has been constructed. Oh, it's like they were all mind controlled to walk into the cattle chute and be slaughtered. Well, on schedule, I'll tell, on a well, schedule. I'll tell you one thing. I mean, one of this is extreme possibility, but I am also of the mind that this is like another challenger situation, and these guys are all just going to show up like in ten or ten years or so, and. Nobody will be able to talk about why Stockton Rush is just, you know, wandering around New York or something, uh, you know, like uh, we saw with the crew of the Challenger. So uh, this is something the ritual doesn't necessarily need to shed blood to be ritualistic. You know, uh, you know, we have the example of the um, 
communion wine or the grape grape juice if you're Protestant. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to drink blood, right? Um, ritual, by definition, is theatrical. It's symbolic. And there's just something here that just seems very much symbolic, very unreal. Uh, but the fact that it all centers around the solstice during a time of these unprecedented solar storms that um, you, you alluded to the, uh, the heat that is gripping, uh, you know, certainly most of this country um, and the solar storms that were starting to be observed, I believe in May, if, if I'm not mistaken. No, I'm we're, on, we're on the way to another solar maximum, which is the 22-year full cycle of sunspots and solar surface activity. So, you know, that's, but that's not causing the heat. The heat is caused by, by trapping, you know, temperatures inside the Earth's atmosphere, and that's the CO2 model. It's just galloping ahead. Yeah, at the rate. I, I, don't, I don't know if I necessarily believe that. Well, uh, the I, numbers, I look, let's not argue about that because the numbers are there. You can look them up. They're real. Putting our heads in okay. the sand and saying that it's not happening. It's 102 here this afternoon. Come on. Yeah, no. but we also had unprecedented solar storms, and you're talking but about But that doesn't night. have anything to do with weather. The, it, the sun doesn't have anything to it, do with no, weather? No, the, the solar storms do not impart enough energy to change the Earth's temperature by a hundredth of a degree. Well, it's, they're talking about the solar storms can wipe out the Internet. Uh, they're talking about yeah, the entire Yeah, but that's because of EM interference. That's a good old, you know, resonant electromagnetic fields, which – the very complicated technical discussion – what I'm looking at is, do you realize what year this is in terms of the sinking of the Titanic, which was a huge red flag for me in terms of ritual symbolism? Well, I have a whole different body of symbolism, but if you wanted to cover that, um, well, but they're do. not necessarily opposed. I think no, they, 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 I think are. they no, interleave. I, I think either. they they complement each other. Let me tell you the first red flag I had. This is literally the 111th year of the sinking of the Titanic. Mm-hmm. And 111, you know, 11, 11, 11 to infinity is 19.5. It's a hyperdimensional ritual mm. that could only mm-hmm. take place around the solstice. And the reason it wasn't exactly on the solstice is because the real physics is not linked to the actual solstice date. It's a window depending upon the year. So this was mm-hmm. a solstice ritual to a hyperdimensional sun, the secret sun which connects to other dimensions, in the 111th, 19.5 year of the deliberate sinking of the Titanic as a huge 19th century, 20th century ritual, if I'm on track to looking at this in a different way. And in terms of these people not really being dead, these people have no compunction about ritual murder. Oh, I'm aware of that. So I have no doubt these people are dead. What I want to know, how were they convinced to walk in and sit in a death trap, which anybody now looking at the background of the company and the development of this technology and the fact that they only succeeded 13 out of almost 100 tries, nobody in their right mind would get into a death trap, particularly not the guy from France who had done 30-plus dives. I think it's the magic 33. And who knew submersibles up and back and forward and had been down in every conceivable state-of-the-art submersible without a problem. I mean, we have had private submersibles diving on the Titanic since 1985. Mm -hmm. This is the first 
catastrophe. Why? Because the head of the company, Stockton Rush, would not allow it to be certified, and he built a death trap, and everybody let him. Yes. Well, I think there's a, a lot of machismo and adrenaline junkie kind of thinking going on here. I think there's a lot of uh, peer pressure. You know, you're asking why, why people would allow themselves to uh, be put into this death trap. Well, people do stupider things every single day, don't they? I mean, people uh, put themselves in extremely dangerous situations where they're often killed um, just to sh show off for a TikTok video, for instance. Uh, the fact that this thing was used used a Logitech game controller, that's very interesting symbolism <laughs> to me as well. Cause well, wait, 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 wait. It was repurposed electronically. The U.S. Navy does the same thing. It turns out that this technology, commercial, when it's revamped, like NASA takes commercial technology, like GoPro cameras, and mm -hmm. re repurposes them for space missions. You know, why pay for all the research and development if some company has done it and is now broken even and can offer it for a background price to a, a government purpose? So I'm not – that doesn't bother me except for the symbolism because it comes back to the idea this was really a game. Well, it's not only that, but the fact – I mean, those things – maybe the U.S. Navy uses something, but I'm sure they're not made – you know, commercial grade. No, and, 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 and they're not using Wi-Fi. Yeah, Everybody I mean, so. to a man on the board and on the, the other outside experts that were, you know, called in various times, they all said, you're nuts if you don't hardwire that. Well, the ritualistic aspect besides the solar issue, the solstice issue, um, is does get back to the fact that there was clearly – an immense amount of attention being drawn to this, something that is really not in and of itself all that big a story. I mean, people going down on a submarine or, or any kind of submersible and dying is not, you know, stop the presses worldwide. You know, that clearly is a thing that leads me to believe that there is a very heavy ritualistic aspect to this. But it's also the naming, okay, the ocean gate, the gate, the Stargate, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> the abyss. Um, and this, oddly enough, when you talk about synchronicity, I was out in Illinois at the Theosophical Center giving a talk on the Titans and the Watchers and the Apkalu and uh, <laughs> the Archons. I mean, all these oh, kind of things. Oh, that's excellent. Why don't we do that as a backgrounder when we start the next half hour? Because we're about two minutes from the bottom of the hour. But yeah, they renamed, Stockton renamed uh, the submersible, which had another name, uh, Explorer or something like that, to the Titan, mm. which I thought was incredible because, of course, the Titanic was also named for the Titan. Mm -hmm. And so diving in the Titan in the tetrahedral 111th year with five rich people who were all civilians, no government involved, just average quote folks except for their bank accounts, and then murdering them. Because remember, we've been doing this kind of diving since 85 with not one fatality. Mm. And I remember mm -hmm. way back when, and I probably don't have time to tell the story on this side of the break. Let me tell you a story from my own childhood, which made me realize something really amazing was going on here that most other folks may not be tuned into. 
which, of mm. course, is why I have you tonight for a full three hours. Okay, so let's sit back. Everyone take a deep breath. Go to the kitchen if you have to. Go to other rooms if you have to. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Tonight we're delving into the mysteries and the possible ritual sacrifice aspects of the sinking of the Titan submersible. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to this uh, Saturday night, July 15th edition of The Other Side of Midnight. My guest this morning is Chris Knowles, who is our kind of resident. Uh, Let let me tell you the story. When I was a kid, you know, of course, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have television. I mean, television existed, but our family didn't want us to have television because my parents didn't want us programmed. Even back then, they were leery of television as this... uh, babysitter in the room. So we didn't get television until much later in my teen years, but we did have radio. And so we could listen to shows like uh, the Lone Ranger. Those parents would drive to the supermarket to do their food shopping. And I remember sitting in the back seat in the dark between the seats, looking at the radio glowing in the dark as we drove to and from listening, listening on radio, which of course is gripping for a kid with an imagination to the Lone Ranger and his, uh, you know, great horse silver. Anyway, radio in those days played a huge role, even bigger than I think television does now, because you had very few independent networks to listen to for global events. 
But somewhere in the summer of, and it was probably in the um, early 50s, there was a sea uh, emergency, a sea soap opera unfolding on live radio. There was a ship that had been struck by a storm in the North Atlantic and a valiant captain named Ericsson. And what caught my attention, of course, was he was a Swede and our family was Swedish. So, you know, my parents listened to it a lot. And he was trying to get this ship, which had been abandoned by all the crew. They'd all been taken off. But he, as the captain, refused to leave the ship after all the crew were off. And he tried to get her towed to the nearest port, which was two or three days away, somewhere in the North Atlantic off, off Europe. And I remember vividly, looking back from my, my Roddenberry years, that what captured my attention was the name of the ship was the Flying Enterprise. So you can look it up on Google. And it, it, it carried on for days after days, and it was like this unfolding live melodrama of the five survivors somewhere on the floor near the Titanic in their submersible, you know, stranded because the weights wouldn't release or whatever, and their air was running out, and every night was a new facet of the soap opera. It had all of the trappings of a a, a world-gripping event that got the involvement of how many separate uh, submerties from Canada, from New Zealand, from France, from you know the Brits, and of course the U.S. Coast Guard. In other words, this was a huge effort bigger than anything in decades, if there ever was anything comparable, all for five private people presumed to be sitting on the bottom of the ocean with their air running out, with time running out, and no one knowing how to rent. It was absolutely irresistible, both back during my that radio show or that epic series and what happened a few weeks ago. Yeah. There you are. Okay. So to me, it looked like somehow it either was going viral or it was being promoted in order to go viral so that the whole planet's consciousness was focused on these five people. And then I began to look at their backgrounds and I found something increasingly weird. Because we've all said, those of us that have been involved in this research work, that the one event that's going to bring the whole world together uh, for ill or good is going to be the discovery that we're not alone, that they're extraterrestrials, that there is this inordinate global impacting reality that no one can avoid, even in the middle of nowhere, in an era of satellites, where we meet the others for the first time in modern history. Okay, so this began to look like a setup for what I call the beam me up Scotty scenario. Suppose alternate scenario, you'd had these five people stranded, then their air ran out. They're still presumed to be alive, kind of like the Heisenberg thing, the cat in the in the box. Is it alive or dead? You don't know till you open the box, right? Uh, you know, it was called the uh, well, what's the name of that? Um, oh, the the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is behind it. Anyway, so I began to wonder: Would this be the entree for real extraterrestrials, real family ETs, part of the Titan group, 
to show up after they're presumed dead, having rescued them with ET technology, maybe up to and including beaming them aboard some Earth-orbiting spacecraft from their watery grave. Would that not be the perfect way to introduce humanity to the shocking and startling idea we're not alone by having the ETs show up as rescuers, as guardian angels, right directly into the heart of the most human of consciousness, which is everybody was praying these folks would make it that they were still alive, right? Well, it's now been, what, three weeks? And they haven't shown up. So that model is sinking fast, pun intended. <laughs> but it got me thinking about if this was a ritual, in whose favor was it, which gods were trying to be propitiated, and was it some kind of a ceremony to introduce the idea that we are not alone? Because one of the uh, passengers, the uh, Pakistani billionaire Dawa. It turns out he just joined the board of directors of the SETI Research Institute in California. Mm. What in the world is a Pakistani businessman doing part of an ET contact effort in California going down to look at the Titanic? Then I went in the background of uh, Hamish Hardy, the billionaire who is kind of like a uh, unknown uh, Branson except Hardy would probably have as much money. He's into the airline business with charter services, and he works primarily, I guess, out of the Middle East, even though he's a British national. Well, I found out that a few years ago, Hamish Hardy, billionaire adventurer, you know, member of the Explorers Club, uh, where I visited many times, accompanied Buzz Aldrin, to the Antarctic just a couple, three years ago, the same trip where Aldrin tweeted out that there was incredible evil involved somehow in the Antarctic, and they carried him out on a stretcher, and in public speaking, he's never been the same since. Mm. What are the odds? Mm. So I've been looking at this in the, again, 111th tetrahedral, 19.5 year of the Titanic as part of a mega ritual involving the reason the Titanic, the ship that could not be sunk in, uh, you know, owed to the gods, the Titans, sank on her first voyage as a metaphor for all of human technological civilization at this key defining moment in solar system time. Mm. Well, do you want my take yeah, on Yeah, of course. So go well, start with who were these ancient gods of the Greeks, the Titans, and why should we give a damn? Well, let's get a little – let's rewind just a little bit because you were talking about this thing was originally – had another name. The original name was the Cyclops. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it, was, it, was another, it was another Greek god. Yes. The Cyclops are part – there's this whole – Well, they were uh, the giants. Yes, but there's this whole group of different gods who were all, they were minor gods, but they were all craftsmen, mm -hmm. okay? Now, the Cyclops are very closely related, related to the Kaba'iri. Now, the Kaba'iri are the great gods of Samothrace, and guess how they got down to the, to the earth? They crashed in a meteor, 
<laughs> it was like Roswell all over again. Oh, they, well, they that's crashed, cute. Ah. They crashed in a meteor. Uh, they came, that's how they came down to Earth, uh, in a flaming star. And they taught uh, Cadmus. You're probably familiar with Cadmus, whose name actually is synonymous with Lucent, right? And there are all these... And also one of the high upper end metallic metals. Yes, exactly. Now, um, the great gods and the Cyclops are also closely related to these other gods of the Akalu. Okay, and the Akalu are the seven sages of Sumerian Babylonian religion. Okay, now what we're talking about, we're talking about all these figures that are extraterrestrial or um, oceanic, <laughs> subsurface oceanic creatures. And they come to Earth or they come to the surface, teach mankind the ways of civilization and so on, and then return to the depths or to outer space. Now, the thing that you need to understand, we're going to get into Osiris in just a moment here, but the outer space was seen to be water by the ancients. Yeah, it was called the Absu, the abyss. Yes, the abyss, the waters above the firmament. And that's where the Titans were relegated to when they lost the war with the gods, right? They were Tartarus, the abyss, okay? Now, I've been tracking a number of different publicly presented events, let's just say. Uh, I'm just going to be very careful about my te- uh, terminology here, in which um, the symbolism of releasing these gods from either inside the earth or from beneath the waves, beneath the ocean, the abyss, and so on. And it's really the same thing, because the ancients saw that, you know, if you went down far enough into the earth, you would get to water. I mean, the Well, we're supposed to be a turtle floating on an infinite ocean. Exactly. Now, Osiris, now this is very interesting. So Horus and Osiris are, are just part of this sort of cycle, okay? So Horus rises on, in the east, right, travels across the sky and sets in the west, right, and then becomes Osiris. And Osiris travels beneath the, the waters, the, the underworld, which is waters. He travels in his boat, right, he travels in his bark, and becomes, you know, when, when he finishes this journey, he becomes Horus once again. So it's all very cyclical. Now, you probably, I'm sure, I don't even, it's not even a question that you're familiar with this symbology, but the um, the uh, dismemberment of Osiris, right? And everything, all the body parts could be found except for the phallus, which Isis fashioned um, uh, an artificial <laughs> one. To, uh, she took the form of a kite, which is a kind of hawk, and, you know, impregnated herself to give to Horus. Well, wait, wait, now, wait, wait, didn't she? No, 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 let me just finish this thought. So I want people to go online, if you, if you haven't seen what this Ops, a.k.a. Titan, looks like, uh, just go have a look at it, because <laughs> it's a very distinct and unusual shape to me, and I, I'll just say this, uh, I, you know, cover your ears if you're, um, you have a dainty disposition, but to me, the Titan looked very much like a severed phallus, um, and the fact that it by all accounts. No, you're right on. You're absolutely right yeah. on. Because yeah, I mean, because the, the member that Isis couldn't find was his phallus, the generative organ. And in one of the myths, she makes one out of gold. Now, why is gold important? 
because gold is a generative metal on the atomic mass scale, which is 195, 19.5. Now, I'll tell you something else. Um, We've discussed Las Vegas, of course, uh, quite notoriously back in 2017 when we were on the air, while shots were ringing out over the um, boulevard there. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, We were actually talking. We were discussing symbolism as that was all going down. Do you remember that, Richard? Of course, yes. Yes, yes. So uh, at the same time, or or shortly after, I should say, this whole situation with the Titan, a.k.a. Cyclops, a.k.a. Osiris, the phallus, um, all sorts of different associations there, we also saw the Las Vegas Sphere, Finally, opening. Uh, did you see that? With yes. The giant eye, the watcher. Well, they they, they can they, they can put any they can put anything on that thing. It's over 500 feet in diameter. It's the world's biggest LED live screen. They even did the moon, Mars. You know, they can replicate anything. And I only saw a brief clip. Hmm. Well, see, my interpretation, we talked about um, the Janet Air Area 51 connections to the whole Las Vegas situation. Right. And what I see with this dome, so just remember, let's get into the symbolism here. Let's just sort of get a little down and dirty. We have the severed phallus fashioning a gold phallus and impregnating herself uh, with the new Osiris Horus, right? But what what is the symbol of... of of Sirius, right? It's the the dome, the womb. You see what I'm saying? Okay. So go look at that sphere again and say, what if this is meant to symbolize a, a pregnant woman's belly? Um, that's, you know, it's, I think that's a bit of a reach. No, it's not a reach. And I, you know, this ties back to how I first discovered this whole phenomenon of watcher adoration and i discovered this phenomenon uh something called the millennium dome in uh greenwich england and they had this it's a very long story but they had this what they called the womb room in within this dome again another dome um that uh was giving birth to giants there it was called the womb room and they had all these giants these giant Figures, these giant statues, and I don't know if you've noticed, if, you, if you've seen what's been going on uh, for the past couple of years now, all these like hideous giant statues are showing up all over the world that are both to the uh, to the Watchers and the Nephilim. Well, you know why that's relevant. The precursor ancient civil because we've been tracking ancient terrestrial civilizations going back tens, hundreds of thousands of years. There was a time, and I can prove it by the scale of the architecture, both on Mars and on the moon, that the precursors to humanity currently were giants, physical Mm. giants. So when you're involving Titan mythology, you know, the children of the gods, giant pre-Adamic race on Earth, I mean, it all is part of the same pie. Mm. But, you know, look at the symbolism that we have. So we have all have these universal myths of a precursor race, right? A precursor race of the, mi- the mighty men of renown, as we read in the mm-hmm. Bible, or mm-hmm. the, the Atlanteans. Right? Yep, yep. Or the, uh, the Titans, the Watchers, on and on and on. And they're all imprisoned in the abyss 
or the underground. And again, it's the same thing. It's the same symbolism. It, it, it both leads to the same understanding that the ancients had. So when we, you know, you ask, you know, if this was this sort of very sick mass ritual, who would be being appealed to, you know, who would be petitioned with this? And the answer, of course, is the giants, the watchers, the archons, the Apollo, uh, the Caballeri, the Cyclops, <laughs> you name it. It's all the same thing. I mean, the giants, uh, of course, the Cyclops are also giants, weren't they? So yes, exactly. It's all the same symbolism. And I believe... Think of David, uh, and, David and Goliath. Come on. Yes. So I believe um, that the... Um, the great gods of Samothrace were also Cyclops. Mm -hmm. So, but there's also this um, connection to Sirius. And if you remember the cage, the original um, script for the cage, um, they were not Telosians. They were from Sirius four and they were uh, sort of crab. Wait, 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 where is this documented? Cause I've never heard that. Uh, in the making of Star Trek, which came out, I believe, in 71. Okay. Yeah, the original treatment of that. Because I had uh, Gene's Bible. I had an original mimeographed, bound with orange cover Bible for the, for the writers. Mm. And it, it never went into the Telosians versus Syrians. Well, no, the, the Syrians. No, in other, words, in other words, by the time I got the Bible, it was already just Telosians. Mm, yeah, but if you read the making of Star Trek, um, it's the they do include the original treatment there. So anyhow, so and also Phil. Well, K. that's Dick not talk- that's not trivial. That's huge. Yes, <laughs> yes. and Philip K. What Dick, did Gene and, know, and when did he know it? Well, I I would argue that he was being seeded by Mr. Leslie Stevens, who also seeded uh, Glenn Larson for Battlestar Galactica, and then also was involved in the um, very interesting and very strange, but also very corny Buck Rogers series of the 70s. So, (laughs) you know, that was kind of his job to come in and and create things for people. But anyhow, um, we're seeing all the symbolism connect, okay? And it all has to deal with these civilizing gods that were banished to the underworld, um, largely because their inventions, their creations, their technology um, created, uh, you know, an atmosphere of just endless war on the face of the earth. If you read the book of Enoch, uh, you know, so why, if these watch angels who come down Mount Hermon and so on and uh, give mankind all these gifts of, uh, you know, reading the stars and reading the clouds and uh, making weapons and writing and all these kind of things, why would this be a problem? Well, the problem would be because they gave birth to this, this race of giants and the race of giants were constantly at war and eating people and eating animals. It just, so there's, the the downside, the negative side of this technology. Well, but wait, 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 wait. Coming from my, my, uh, outside of the world. Mythologies always vilify the other, the enemy. We don't know this for a fact. I mean, the fact that we have giants as part of the lineage simply means that somehow politically they were out of favor, and the propaganda made them into horrible human-eating monsters to basically make them the others, so you would kill them without thinking. We really well, don't know what the real history is at all. No, I, no, I mean, I don't think Enoch is real history. I, I think that Enoch is um, allegory. Okay. But I think 
when we're talking about the Giants, now, if you want to understand um, why I believe that this came to be written in Enoch, it came to be written because where was it written? It was written in, in Babylon. It was written during the Babylonian captivity right. and during the time of the Assyrians, right? But the Assyrians, everybody who sort of, all these various peoples who came into Mesopotamia and took control of, you know, this rich, fertile crescent between uh, the two rivers, um, always adapted the Sumerian religion and their language as their sacred language, okay? Now, the, the kings of the city-states of uh, the Sumerians, Akkadians, and Babylonians were called Lugals, and Lugal means giant, literally means big man. Hmm. So, um, there, there is certain indications. I mean, there's many, many depictions of these kings being three or four times the size of, of normal human beings. And, you know, you could argue that this is all symbolism and so on. Well, wait, 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 wait. There is data coming out of the Smithsonian, you know, like a century or more ago, of various fossil finds of huge mm. human bones that disappear. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. someone is censoring the reality of the genealogical tree of humanity to remove any physical evidence that, in fact, giants were real and lived on the earth, and it's there. You just have to look for it. Well, I think that when you look at the, the stories of the gods and the titans, I think that this is an allegory of the defeat of these I – mean, it's very easily – argued that the giants were the old kings and they were literally giants they were the old kings of the ancient world particularly in mesopotamia and that shorter people (laughs) shorter people came along and deposed them and uh and had them all killed off and and of course you can read these very sober depictions in the don't go to that city you know that there there are too many giants there you know stay out of that situation so anyhow um you know the titan the titanic and so on and we get into the titanic itself but this is all um part of this very complex web of events that i've been studying again, that all have to deal with releasing these old gods, these old demigods, however you choose to see them, the men of renown, whomever, from their um, cages, basically, in either the abyss or the underworld. And again, it's the same thing because of the way of the ancients understood the cosmos. So um, that's how I see it. Um, there's a lot more to it. But we have you time. Count, you can count Osiris uh, in among these these figures, right? I mean, you know, the shaft of Osiris, uh, Osiris' tomb, and so on, filled with water, isn't it, right? And I noticed that you had David Sarita on recently, yes. and I remember listening to David Sarita talk about uh, that water was uh, a medium for stargates, for uh, wormhole travel, and so on. And there's also the theories that Robert. KG Temple talked about that there were uh, that these Apkalu or the the Dogon um, the Nomo <laughs> not the Dogon um, you know these these very amphibious types of creatures were in hibernation or in stasis in the waters beneath Europa and of course Arthur C Clarke sort of picks that up for 2010 doesn't he so. Um, 
there is a very specific. Well, wait, wait. You know where you, you, you know where Arthur got the idea for life in the oceans of Europa, don't you? From me. From me. <laughs> it's acknowledging the damn, you know, forward to uh, 2010. Oh my goodness! I, I, where's my copy of that book? It should be around here. Yeah, I did I'm, not realize that. Good I, for you. I am in there now. Of course, 30 plus years later, almost 40. NASA is basically saying there are two other huge oceans in the solar system, uh, Europa and um, Enceladus, and probably a lot more like the moons of Ganymede, Callisto, any of these. What about Titan itself? I mean, and Titan, yes, yes. I mean, they they say that it's uh, what is it? Uh, Liquid ammonia, though, right? Well, that's just a model. So right. So anyhow, so I think that there is. A very, it sounds very complex, right? But it really breaks down to the same understanding, and the same understanding that you see today on shows like Ancient Aliens and so on. That this is all aliens and all this kind of thing. Um, it's all, and not only concurrently. What else happened around the same time? A little bit before this Titan thing was this the quote-unquote UFO whistleblower, David Crouch. Right, so it all seems to be uh, congealing. I, I totally sort of... agree. Uh, in fact, I think the metaphor I've used is that award-winning movie from uh, is it Korea? Everything, everywhere, all at once. That's mm. what we're living through. All these apparently mm. disconnected things are all part of the same matrix because the physics is up now. You can only surf when surf is up. Surf is up, and so all these things that look on the surface like they're separate. They're really connected by deep tap roots underneath in our model. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, we are <laughs> we are at the top of the hour, so let's hold yeah, it there. Yeah, I was waiting for that. <laughs> <laughs> my my guest this morning is Christopher Knowles. We have not had Chris back on the show, who is a brother in symbology, very much like uh, well, like I've been pursuing, and we kind of found that each other were looking at this amazing stuff. Speaking of Leith Stevens, as part of our breaks tonight, an homage to Leith Stevens, here is something from Worlds Without End. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday night, July 15th, 2023. Can you believe we're halfway through the year? More than halfway. It's um, Anyway, so back to my guest of the morning, Chris uh, Knowles. We're discussing the mythologies swirling around, pun intended, the very bizarre soap opera-like thinking implosion, we're now told, of a submersible, a commercial submersible, a disaster that when you read the literature now and all the letters and memos and critiques and technical literature and discussion on the internet around the Ocean Gate uh, project, it looks like, uh, uh, Chris, that this ritual was like a decade or more in the making and they laid the amazing trail that this guy, the head of this company, was an arrogant SOB who would listen to nobody and basically was just an accident waiting to happen, which I think, again, is a very carefully laid paper trail for a plausible deniability uh, reason for such a catastrophe when, for decades, going down to the Titanic in credible technology was 100% safe. Well, what, what were the gods most offended by in the old myths? Noise. Hubris. Okay. They were, they were offended by hubris. That, that always brought the, uh, the thunderbolts of the gods down on you. So if, if that kind of um, seed planting in the public mind was intent, um, that ties in again to this whole mythos that I've been exploring here. And like I said, it's all very consistent and it's all very interesting that we heard, I was actually in um, Chicago when the news came that, you know, this thing had imploded and it was being pulled up and so on and so forth. And then of course, what we experienced almost immediately afterwards, uh, at least on the East coast was um, these incredible storms uh, taking place all across the uh, eastern half of the country, uh, tornadoes. Um, I think 2,000 flights were canceled. I had to take three flights back to New Jersey. It took me uh, 10 hours to get home. It's a, usually an hour and a half flight. Um, I don't know. <laughs> that might have just been a happy accident uh, if this, uh, you know, to any sort of um, hypothetical, let's just say, mm-hmm. ritualistic planners, um, I'm less convinced of the happy accident aspect of the quote-unquote, you know, this whole ongoing disclosure quote-unquote saga. And like I said, the um, opening of the uh, sphere in Las Vegas. I mean, Las Vegas is something that I'm always looking very carefully at because, of course, it's um, – not too far from Area 51, is it? And, uh, you know, there are uh, all kinds of interesting things flying over that city all the time. Yeah, the only problem is that if you want something to go worldwide and viral, 
the last place you should debut it is Vegas because remember what takes place in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> well, you know, I, that's only if it wasn't uh, being broadcast uh, all across the world. Uh, you know, I mean, Vegas is a, is a great place to premiere, uh, you know, your shows and so on, you know, and look at all the obvious ritualism that we've looked at, particularly in relation to Harvest 91. So um, there is a consistent body of symbols that I've been looking at for a very long time that show up here, but also show up in the Titanic. See, now, I, see, I, to me, the symbology of the Vegas dome is very connected to some bizarre physics that we've discovered that indicate very strongly – you have not been on the show for a while, so you may not have followed the argument – but it looks to me like we are in space, in space-time. We have been imprisoned in a, in a dome, in a globe, in a sphere uh, with energy fields, hyperdimensional physics and all that, because it's kind of like the Phantom Zone in Superman. Something happened a long time ago, hundreds of thousands of years. The reason I know that is because we can actually do a celestial alignment date on Mars at the southern end of the Jezero crater where there is a, um, a, a spacecraft, the Perseverance rover that was landed on Mars a couple of years ago that's ostensibly, you know, rolling around picking up samples for biological return someday to Earth and analysis in terrestrial laboratories looking for life in an ancient ocean uh, under a 30-mile lake. At the southern end of that crater, there are two sets of pyramids arrayed in exactly the same geometry as the Giza Plateau pyramids and the belt of, wait for it, Osiris Orion. Mm. And one group is scale identical to Earth, same size as the pyramids in Egypt. The other example, right side by side within a few miles, are much bigger. The pyramids are on the order of the scale that we see at Sidonia, where the pyramids, which are ecologies, are miles on the side, and they're arrayed in a mirror image geometry of the Orion belt stars, indicating to me, you know, different dimensions, uh, reflections, that kind of mirror reality, and you can actually see it on on these images, and you and you get because of the alignments an actual date. In solar system history, which is not all that long ago, it's on the order of 110, 113,000 years, which to me looks like the time in the solar system where someone did something and literally put us in prison. And by us, do we mean the current us and our progenitors, which were the gods of old, the giants, the men of renown, who are cast down in all these sacred texts? Well, that is the question, and that is also the, again, this body of symbolism that I've been studying quite intently. But it also leads, you know, I do wonder about the um, ongoing interest among the uh, you know, for instance, the space program, all the various tendrils of the space program, um, because I'm starting to see, I, it seems to me that there's a lagging, there's a, a distinct um, uh, 
almost like an anemia uh, going on. I mean, because you remember that all the excitement over Constellation uh, back in the mid-2000s, and then all of a sudden that was canceled. Now we have this Artemis program, but it seems uh, it seems very half-hearted. And well, because there's not been a, there's not been a full court press, and unless nowadays you have people involved in space, nobody gives a damn. Robots are a dime a dozen. The idea of the unmanned Artemis One mission it was a big yawn, except for those of us that see it as a step prelude to when the big reveal is going to happen. The really exciting part is not the Artemis mission. It's Musk's private space program with Starship taking nine artists, two of whom we are in touch with, that are going to physically be able to look out the damn windows, take images, stunning video, transmit them back to Earth and have it all over Twitter so they will see the ruins, the incredible glass ruins that the giants, our predecessors, left in the Earth-Moon system. Mm. Well, that's a lot of ifs, I would say. Uh, I, I do wonder... Wait, wait, wait. What, 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 what part? Well, all of it. I, you know, wait, wait. Is not we, Musk going to the moon? I, I have not seen a very serious effort in, in that regard. Um, well, then I, we I obviously not... differ because I think it's an absolutely 100-pipe lead pipe cinch. It's the way of disclosure. It's the government plausible deniability. Oh, we didn't see anything until we had the right technology orbiting the moon. Mm. Well, like I said, I mean, I'm a child of the, you know, the post-space, uh, post-Apollo era, and I've just uh, had too many heard too many broken promises uh, when it comes to that. I mean, I, you know, we're talking a good 50 plus years of, uh, of broken promises on the, on the part of NASA. And, and to be honest with you, I don't trust uh, NASA as far as I could throw it. And I do find it interesting though, that Stockton and Rush and this ocean quest um, organization did have a, some sort of connection to the Marshall uh, flight center. Yeah, It turned out that was a that. total lie. That was Stockton Rush just typing like crazy, a casual conversation. Mm. So there is no NASA connection. There's no University of Washington connection. This was a cowboy. And I, I don't buy the ego part. This was a setup. And so many things had to fall into place to produce this disaster at its due date. Well, he said a lot of dumb stuff, though. I mean, he, yeah, incredible he seemed like dumb a pretty stuff. obnoxious guy. <laughs> and he, he did seem to me, I mean, you know, put bluntly, he did seem rather hubristic. Uh, and, of course, that being <laughs> the, the ultimate sin. Um, one thing about the Titanic, though, uh, I hadn't realized this. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know if this is like a Mandela effect kind of thing. I always thought it... it uh, happened closer to Greenland, but it's uh... no, 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 no. Right off Newfoundland, three hundred and seventy miles, something like that, off Newfoundland. Exactly, exactly. Now the interesting thing about that, though, is that um, this ties into the, this map that I made, because if you if you go from the Titanic um, crash site here, I'm looking at a map right here, right, and just travel due west, you're going to end up in Portsmouth. New Hampshire, the home of uh, Betty and Barney Hill. Right, right. <laughs> and also, uh, you know, very close to that is um, where uh, um, Admiral Herbert Knowles, no relation, uh, 
lived and, and was very much involved in the, uh, let's just say, the popularization of the Betty and Barney Hill stories. But um, if you look at this area, you know, it's very interesting to me because we had um, a lot of UFO, a lot of really what I call the, the UFO uh, hit parade, um, not too far from this area. And, you know, and of course, you know, planetary space, I mean, it's, it's right next door. I mean, again, like if you travel to rush, you're going to end up right in Portsmouth here. And, uh, there's um, Exeter and uh, there's um, Yeah, you, you know you know that I spent a whole night with Betty and Barney Hill back no, oh, didn't you know didn't that. know that. Yes, I debriefed them and I'm the guy that got Alan Hynek to hypnotically regress them mm-hmm. through uh, the, the psychiatrist in, in Boston to recreate uh, have Betty recreate the damn star map. Mm. That's what I fastened mm. on. I also realized after the end of that evening that I never wanted anything realistically to do with UFOs because even then it was hopelessly, hopelessly controlled, you know, psyoped, uh, CIA heavily in- involved. There was no mm. way to ever get to the ET truth through the, you know, astronaut ET doorway. But years later, when I got a look at ruins, I realized ruins doorway the data will stand still. Hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's a hall of mirrors. And that's why I'm just so bored by all this quote unquote, um, disclosure. Yeah, but disclosure has two, disclosure has two wings. It's got the UFO crazy. And I include all of that. And then it's got the artifacts. And the other day, a few weeks ago, did you know that NASA turned 180 it's setting up this unidentified anomalous phenomena panel Mm. and under that office which is an official program office which will be set up by nelson the current administrator senator bill nelson who's kind of like a space jimmy stewart i realized the other day he sounds so much like jimmy stewart anyway (laughs) he is going to set up this office as the administrator covering the entire waterfront of unidentified not aerial phenomenon, but unidentified anomalous phenomenon. And under that office, they're going to have another office devoted to looking for extraterrestrial artifacts. Ding, ding, mm. ding, 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 ding. Mm. Yeah, I, I, and that's I the doorway that. which we have cornered. We have covered the market. We are the monopoly on real data <laughs> on artifacts. And that's why suddenly I'm getting a lot of interview requests from all over the planet, mm. including I'm back on coast. I've been on Clyde show dozens of times. I'm writing two books, one with the team, the Mars book, and another mm. by myself, the moon book. And remember the other day, this was only a year or two ago, Rogan and Musk sat on Rogan's show, which has what, like a hundred million people listening or something. Mm-hmm. And they spent a half an hour talking about my research, mm. up and down and back. I've got the I've got the tape. I should probably play it again uh, next weekend. We'll play it next weekend. So mm. what I'm going to do when we're at the right point in this unfolding political disclosure process, which is all about them covering their asses, it's all about not being hung for keeping all this secret. Mm-hmm. And I think they figured out a political way to carry it off, which is fine. Because we'll get access. 
by opening the door to artifacts, they've opened the door to independent artifacts research, us, and the crucial data point that they can't lie about because other people will show them up, which is the libraries. When we Mm. find the ancient libraries to this epic of human solar system civilization on the moon, on Mars, on Earth, and that's where my friend John Womack is doing some stunning stuff in Utah with uh, Keith Morgan. It's all going to hit the fan at once. They will not be able to lie their way out of this one because, as my grandmother said, when you pull on the right thread in the, in the quilt, the whole damn thing will fall apart. Mm. Well, my concern is that this is all information management. And all these things that you derail it is my concern. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. I could be wrong. Well, you, uh, I'm, I'm telling you flat out, Chris, tonight, friend, colleague, you're damn ass wrong. The reason you're wrong is because of people like Musk. Competition. Mm-hmm. Musk is not the only guy developing technology to take tourists to the moon. Mm-hmm. And what I'm looking at in terms of the Titan, what they're trying to do through the fear porn doorway, they're trying to poison the well so people will say, Wait a minute. I think I want to stay on Earth. I don't want to trust my, you know, fragile body like the folks on the Titan to some crazy billionaire who is absolutely mad on social media. Mm. Well, interesting. You know, you pointed this out before when we were talking, you know, the connection with the billionaires, the ultra rich, the, the Titan. The, it seems to be a little a little club uh, that has shared interests. I had somebody on Twitter tell me today, oh, you know, the the, the rich and the, the powerful, they don't care about all this weird kind of esoteric occult stuff. Are, they, like, are they kidding? I know. That's their central religion. I know. I know. It's, if they have a religion, ridiculous. that's it. Uh, it is. But anyway, back to the Titanic. So like I said. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me, let's not pass over Musk quickly. Remember where the, where the name Elon is first mentioned mm, in the public yes. literature? Yes, I do, of course. Tell everybody. Yes, uh, uh, Warner Erhard. No, no, Warner von Braun. Oh, Warner von Braun, yes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting my word. In his novels <laughs> regarding right. colonization of Mars, and what is Musk, big, 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 you know, MacGuffin? Sending mm. colonists to Mars, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in Von Braun's novel, which I've got a copy, and I read a cover to cover. By the way, there's all kinds of cute 19.5 clues, so Werner knew the physics too mm-hmm. in the novel. Mm-hmm. He, he winds up sending colonists in the novel, <clears throat> and they wind up electing government, right? Mm-hmm. And they set up this parliamentary system where you have you know, houses and executives and all that, and the chief executive is not called the president or the king, or the pharaoh. He is the Elon. (laughs) Where the hell did Elon's parents get his name? It turns out it comes from Hebrew history, pre-pre-pre-Old Testament, and it means a judge. Mm. And Elon is a judge. Elon Musk is judging the condition of the human race and offering a judgment, which is get the hell out of Dodge as fast as possible. <laughs> uh, let me ask you a question. When was that uh, Von Braun book published? Was it before or after uh, Musk was born? 
Oh, it was before. Because it was in the 1940s, I think, the early, uh, after the end of the war. Well, technically, it was written by von Braun during World War II. But Mm -hmm. it wasn't published, I think, until maybe the late 40s or early 50s. Mm. So they're contemporaneously the same age. Okay. I believe. I I just wanted to backtrack. Um, This might sound a bit of a detour or maybe irrelevant. Nothing but, is know, a detour were, here. Nothing. <laughs> you were talking about Betty and Barney Hill and the, the star map, the Zetereticulite mm-hmm. star map. Now, the thing that always struck me uh, when I first, and this has to do, this ties in very closely with a lot of the Las Vegas stuff we're doing. And of course, Oumuamua, which if you want to get into that again, we can. Mm-hmm. But um, what struck me is that I assign a particular significance to Supernova 1987A. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, of course, the one in the Magellanic Cloud. Yes, exactly. Only 180,000 light years away. Yeah, which is right on the other side of, um, you know, reticulum proper from Zeta Reticuli. I mean, you know, right. uh, and as far as stellar, you know, stellar space, at least as we see it, right? I mean, it's uh, cheek by jowl. Now, and again, the interesting thing with the Titanic is this admiral in Maine who um, seemed to be at the epicenter of all these um, very famous, very well-publicized UFO uh, events, many of which were, um, uh, you know, abduction and so on. But there is one case that I found particularly um, interesting. Uh, do you know the name Betty Andreas and Luca? Yeah, of course. You know that name? I tried now, to get, what's his name, who did the uh, and, Andresen Affair and all the other sequences. Fowler? Uh, yeah, Fowler. I tried to get him on the show. He refuses to come on the show and talk about any of this. And he's got a new book out. And he wouldn't come on and prom- promote it. And I, 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 I smell a rat. Well, do you remember the name of those books that he wrote about Betty? And yeah, Christ it was called the An- the first one was called the Andresen Affair. Well, the other two were called the Watchers. Right. And she was also the first person who really popularized this whole idea of human alien hybrids. Okay. Now, do you remember? Uh, did you? I don't know how much attention you pay to Twitter or social I, media. I try not to pay any attention to Twitter. It's become a, okay. a, a, a swamp. But uh, there was a recently uh, viral video that was taken on an airplane, and a woman started freaking out and was saying, uh, you know, the guy that she was sitting next to wasn't real. Oh, yeah, I saw that story. I didn't read the story, but it was, uh, you know, there's only so much you can do in a day. And And there was a lot of talk about, you know, the reptilian thing and so on and so forth. Um, Remember remember a movie called They Live where you could put on glasses and you saw the real aliens? Yeah, I've got a little, And who got was a little, it recently? Uh, who was it recently? A guy named Gary Nolan, no relation to Christopher Nolan, the director producer, who just produced this amazing sequence of films, um, uh, particularly Oppenheimer. I'm I'm looking at the timing of Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Why now? Why now? Mm-hmm. Think mm-hmm. think of well, what did Oppenheimer say when they blew off the bomb here south of me? Down at White Sands. Mm, the Hindus. Exactly. It's all part of the same matrix, everything, everywhere, all at once. Well, let me ask you a question, Richard. Did you see, uh, did you watch Twin Peaks back in Oh, wait, 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 wait. Of course. Riveted, riveted. 
and uh, uh, you know where I'm going with this, right? Episode eight and the Trinity test and uh, yep. the opening of the dimensional. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and of course, well, remember Christopher Nolan and Interstellar. Atomic, right? atomic and hydrogen weapons are a shortcut between our bubble, our dimension, and whatever else is out there. Well, see, that's why I was always very interested in the. And, uh, and you know how we know that. Do you know how we know that as science? Which how do of course we know that? the mainstream won't acknowledge. Uh, you need to talk to Joseph Farrell about this because we've done several programs. Oh, I'd love to talk to Joseph. Ma- many years ago, we did programs on this. When you start tabulating the yields of the various tests, in other words, uh, the one here, the Inuitok, the Mike test, the, the hydrogen bomb tests in the South Pacific during the 50s, mm-hmm. they never were able to predict the actual yield of the A-bomb or H-bomb test. They Mm. were always way off, either too little energy or much too much. Mm. And so Farrell and I independently realized that that this happens because you cannot detonate a reliable H-bomb or A-bomb at any given latitude on any given Thursday and have it give yield specific energies because it's all dependent on the celestial alignments of hyperdimensional physics. Mm. They are portals between dimensions, and sometimes the gate is narrow, so the yield is much smaller than they calculate, and other Mm -hmm. times it's much bigger because it's all phased with the physics of the solar system machine in which we were deliberately placed, and then someone broke it a long time ago. Well, which is why I think we should be rather concerned that the the H-bomb test that they did in the Marshall Islands in 1946 were called Operation Crossroads, because Crossroads is where you go to to consort with demons. Yes, yes. So, you know, I don't think... uh, There's also some other connection that someone recently found, which is really fascinating. Keith, do you remember that? There's some literature connection to the atomic bomb tests and ETs directly? But I don't remember the details. Well, a uh, couple interesting things. First of all, my wife's cousin is married to a princess of the Marshall Islands, which sounds a lot more impressive than it actually is because <laughs> there, are, there are like hundreds of them. But, um, uh, you know, I think that the um, the symbolism there, I, I've done a lot of work on this, the events up to and surrounding Roswell and the symbolism is just completely off the charts, particularly with the alignments, particularly with the alignments, um, you know, the alignments with Baalbek and Mount Hermon and so on and so forth. Uh, those are rather startling. I know that you were um, familiar with the late David Flynn. Do you remember David? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I sort of expanded on some of the work that he had done. Uh, very, very interesting uh also, Socorro is um, aligned on the on the same latitude as as Baalbek, mm-hmm. and uh, there, there are a lot of those kind of things mm-hmm. in the plains of Saint Augustine and so on. See, I've always so, felt when I got seriously interested in it, because remember, I kind of turned my back on UFOs mm, but, wisely. But the, well, <laughs> it, it, it's a bottomless morass. That's yeah. not how people are going to learn the truth. They're going to le- learn it through our research. And that's what next Saturday is all about, showing how the Indians are getting on board. The South Koreans already are on board. It's just waiting to be born. It's within weeks, if not months, of being born 
in a totally unexpected way, and we are at the bottom of the hour. So let me gently turn down the, the potentiometer on Chris and remind everybody you are on the other side of midnight. We're going into the deep symbolism. Sorry about that. Uh, again, of the Titan's enigmatic catastrophe, a catastrophe just waiting to happen. And it's surprising it didn't on any one of those 90 attempts. On the 91st, they bought the farm. And 91 turns out to have been a number very big in the mythology around the Las Vegas shootings. A pattern, a pattern, a pattern. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday edition for July 15th, 2023, of The Other Side of Midnight. So back to Chris. Uh, I, I think I cut you off on something, or maybe not. Well, there's something that I wanted to point out. So when I look at to de- try to determine if something is ritualistic, there's always a sequence, okay? It's never just an isolated incident. Okay, so we talked about... See, I, I look at the numbers, because the numbers can't lie. Okay, well, uh, that's fine. Uh, Let me just finish what I was saying. So the sequence, you know, I talked about the sequence um, with the the dome and so on, and then the UFO whistleblower. Now, there's another story that, you know, ties back to our discussion in Las Vegas and Oumuamua and so on. You probably know where I'm going with this, where Avi Loeb was off the coast of doing an exploration off the coast of Papua New Guinea. Yes, I was going to bring that up as another deep sea weirdness in the same time frame. Go ahead. Yeah, so it announced, uh, if your listeners aren't familiar with this, um, Avi Loeb, who claims that um, uh, Oumuamua is basically Rama, (laughs) put simply. Um, Well, he's right. Remember, independently of, of him, I sat on the show and I laid out in specific detail 
why Oumuamua was in fact an artificial craft sent here at the right time and somebody attacked it and tried to destroy it, which opens up a huge can of worms. And then weeks later, you know, Loeb got onto the, the bandstand and started claiming from his independent research it was an alien ET spacecraft, et cetera, et cetera. But he will never come on my show and talk about it because I had data, I guarantee you, unless he's deep in the intel community, which he is, he does not know about because his public reasoning for why Oumuamua was a spacecraft is frankly crap. And mm. our reasoning and data is absolutely real, verifiable, and because he has access to laboratory facilities at Harvard, he could he could verify the model in a day or two for no money, no money at all. Mm-hmm. All he has to do is follow De Palma's original experiments. My departed friend Bruce De Palma, brother of Brian De Palma, who did mm-hmm. a brilliant hangout movie about what? The face on Mars. Mm, Mission to Mars, your old favorite, Richard. So I keep trying to get people to give Loeb the word, even if he can't do it live, because apparently he's an old fuddy-duddy, and he will not come on the show live from Harvard, from the East Coast, at 10 o'clock, which would be midnight his time. You know, he goes to bed with the, with the chickens or something. But we could tape it. You know, we wouldn't have live audience input, but we could tape it. He, he's been avoiding me ever since Samuamua because I don't think he wants to share the limelight. Hmm. Well, the, here's the interesting thing, though. So we talked about proximity and so on. Now, if you look at a map, um, Papua New Guinea is not far, relatively speaking, <laughs> in Pacific terms, to the Marshall Islands. And matter of fact, if you just go uh, due north northeast from where Mr. Loeb claimed to find these alien artifacts, you're going to end up in the Marshall Islands, uh, Bikini Atoll and so on, so Operation Crossroads. So what a very, very interesting place to find these uh, so-called alien artifacts right near where back in 1946 uh, they did these hydrogen bomb tests uh, that they called Operation Crossroads, uh, (laughs) alluding to um, consorting with demons. Well, wait, 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 wait. Is it possible it's a very simple declarification of the the name? To me, a crossroads means like a bullseye with a cross X in the center. X marks the spot. Mm. Well, I mean, that, that could certainly be true, but I'm just looking at it in preponderance of all these other events uh, Shelter Island, you're probably familiar with um, the Shelter Island Conference with uh, all those great minds. Yeah, but our audience may not be. So, you know, give it, give it, Pracy. What, what's the Shelter okay, Island? Okay, so shortly before, um, in, I think I believe it was in between the Kenneth Arnold and the Roswell. No, I'm sorry, it was a little bit earlier. I'm sorry, it's the beginning of June of 1947 at the Ram's Head Inn, and uh, there's all kind of ram, which is, of course, Jupiter, Amon, uh, Amon, I mean, all these rams headed, uh, you know, their depictions of Zeus and so on with ram's horns. Um, <clears throat> there was a... Well, it goes back uh, to the Sumerian. Remember the gods in the Sumerian culture mm, 6,000 yes, years exactly. ago, they all had the horned uh, headdress of the gods. And why horns? To me, it's a metaphor for communication, antenna, reception of information. 
Well, don't forget the um, controversy over the quote-unquote Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, statues in Madison Square, where they've had all a, a number of different watcher-type quote-unquote art installations, and of course that very demonic-looking uh, ram's-horned figure was called Witness. So there are watchers again. So anyhow, the Shelter Island Conference, uh, where they collected all these um, great minds in physics, in uh, quantum physics and so on. Uh, it was assembled by the Rockefellers. Of course. <laughs> and no minutes were kept. Oh. No minutes were kept. Um, all these great minds were assembled. Uh, no one knows exactly what they talked about. Unlike, uh, you know, every other physics uh, conference that you can imagine. And, and this was in 1947? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the beginning of June. Well, so, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. 1947, June is the sixth month, 19.47, which is really 19.5 to its actual mm, four, mm-hmm, you know, decimal mm-hmm. place accuracy. Mm-hmm. This is part of the ritual, mm-hmm. obviously. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so anyhow, so again, when I try to deconstruct these events and try to obviously looking for the blatant use of uh, names and numbers. See, the cool thing is you have your modality and mm-hmm. I have mine and mm-hmm. never the twain shall meet, except they do. Two independent researchers, two totally independent techniques, and we wind up at the same <clears throat> crossroads. Mm. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? <laughs> no, it's what science is supposed to be. Mm, it is. But anyhow, um, I, like again, I've been following a lot of this symbolism for some time now, and water and the oceans and the abyss and Tiamat and Abzu mm-hmm. and all these kind of things are just recurring. They're metaphors. They're symbolic, hyper-dimensional metaphors. And the other thing, too, is um, I don't know if we've discussed the, the whole idea of the siren and the old ones no. uh, on your show. Sounds but interesting. The siren, yeah, the siren, as I like to point out, um, these days is probably the most ubiquitous symbol in the Western world, certainly in North America, because you can't go into any town, major town uh, in North America without running smack dab into Starbucks, of course, yes. Starbucks, right? Yep. <laughs> which, Have um, you seen their logo? Yes, their logo, <laughs> which is the Siren of the Philosophers, the Melusine, right? Yep. Um, and they, they removed all the typography, so it's just pure. I mean, everywhere you go, I mean, that, this, is, this is entrainment. This is conditioning. And I've always wondered. Or, or wait, 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 wait. There, there's one other, because Georgia, I should have had uh, uh, Georgia Lambert on tonight to talk about this, if I don't ever go this deep into what the symbology means. But there's, there's such a thing in my model called hyperdimensional resonance. Mm-hmm. I, I used to be of the school that when we saw these patterns, when I did, somebody was doing it. I'm, I'm now of two minds and the art form is how do you tell which is which there is humans doing it, propitiating something. It's like that old Star Trek first generation uh, um, uh, episode uh, piece of the action. Remember that one where they land on a planet and it turns out, that they're following the 1930s 
uh, Al Capone model because they <laughs> because they have a novel preserved from the crash landed starship and they've got it set up on a gold you know pedestal in the chief guy's office because they follow the book. <laughs> so is all this ritual just following the book without knowing the, the 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 background, the real physics of the rituals, or is it both? Are humans following the book because ritual? If you ping the swing at a certain time in the in the in the cycle, you literally can affect it with consciousness, and the background, you know, matrix produces these nodal points of where these resonance patterns occur naturally in terms of the background matrix in which we're all immersed. And if you resonate the two, there are times when you literally can move the river and the rituals are designed by the in crowd, the multi, multi billionaire oligarchs that run the world to basically move the river. And now because the river is way high, think of Vermont, they're doing these things to try to change the future, like mm. the Titan ritual, because the gods are real. They're not gods, but they're, you know, they fulfill Arthur Clarke's third law. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic or godlike religion. Well, just as a, as a rule of thumb, and you can follow this and, and your listeners can follow this, um, you know, just since I've been doing this for quite some time now and have gotten, you know, some pretty major hits and broken some pretty major codes. Um, the thing that I, I found that when it is human beings, uh, ritualistic minded human beings uh, performing these things, it's usually very, very repetitive and very, very simplistic. Okay. Uh, it's, it's the hammer being struck on the head of the nail over and over and over again. These people do not do subtlety. They do not do, uh, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. It's always right square in the middle of the forehead. It's about as subtle, you know, as a shotgun blast to the face. When it's, it's you know, a little more uh, elusive, a little more, let's say, um, hard to parse when it escapes the notice of the public at whatever level, that's when I think that it is these higher forces playing out these things. You see what I'm saying? Well, I understand you. Yeah, I understand that you're dividing these two ideas at one. But I have found there's an awful lot of what I call Emily Dickinson communication going on with the terrestrial uh, mythologists, the symbolic makers, the, 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 the pattern matchers. And the reason most people don't pay attention is they, most people don't pay attention to anything. They can't. They're, mm. It's like drinking from Niagara Falls to try to follow all this stuff. And they've got jobs and car payments and kids and mortgages and, you know, the usual crap of life in three dimensions. Well, well, can I just weigh in with with an old favorite? You had mentioned Piece of the Action, the Star Trek original mm -hmm. series. Um, the 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 story was written by a guy named David Harmon. Okay. Okay. And David Harmon died on Jack Kirby's birthday. Oh. 
which I find, uh, you know, I'm always looking at things like that. I was like, oh, my goodness. Uh, See, I would think funny? of that as, as, a, as a resonance node. No, so do I. Like so birds of a feather flock together or, or resonate, you know. Well, with Kirby, you know, we've talked about Kirby before. And uh, I've, my new book, uh, which will be coming out soon, called The Spandex Files, has got oh. a whole section on Jack Kirby. But, <laughs> I, um, love the, oh, I love the title. Thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> but Kirby, to me, I, I believe, um, was like a remote viewer or somebody, like, very much almost like an Ingo Swan type. And the interesting thing is that the way See, Kirby... again, I might differ in detail because my thinking when I looked at Kirby's life is he was an immigrant. He spoke German. While Bill and the OSS needed German translations... He got it got access to all bunch of secret German, incredibly occult, incredibly occult physics stuff, and so he had an inside track on what the Germans had figured out. And then when he got back to civilian life, his imagination put it to use, and he did incredible art and incredible storytelling. I mean, how did he come out with the Face on Mars as a comic book decades before we found out there's a Face on Mars with well, the right backstory? Here's the problem, though. I mean, Kirby was a very, very strange man. Okay, you I mean, think? he was. He was. Uh, let's just say, very deep into the spectrum. Let's just say, um, the work that he did during the war was not intelligence; it was reconnaissance. And what had happened is that Kirby um, was down in a down in Georgia, I believe, uh, where he did his basic training, and then he was sent to fight with Patton's army in Europe. And what happened is that his CEO found out that he was the same as comic book artist and said, okay, well, listen, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go behind the lines and you're going to sketch everything you see and you're going to bring it back to us. Um, and this was extremely, uh, extremely stressful, let's just say, uh, traumatic. Type but wait, of wait, wait, wait. Let's go back to the idea of they live the movie. Mm -hmm. If you send a Kirby personality, a consciousness envelope that's looking at weird interesting stuff and you put him in the right environment he might notice things that nobody else has noticed and follow trails that nobody else will think to even begin to think is important because he's predisposed to look in that direction well no the, the, the point that i'm making here though is that i don't see people entrusting kirby with like high level information first of all because they would just assume that he would just put it in his comic books anyway, you know, uh, as people like that would go, oh, a great idea for a story. Yeah, but that's why um, you have documents. That's why you sign non-disclosures. That's why you no, legally. Now, I've studied Kirby all my life. I, I had a phone conversation with him. Um, so you think he basically got it from the ether like I think Burroughs got his Mars from the ether. I, I think it's a very similar process because what did the remote viewers do? How did they work? They sat them in a room with a piece of paper, white right. piece of paper, and a pen, right? And how did Jack Kirby work? He sat in a room. He sat down in his basement, and in this case, with a blank piece of paper and, and, and a pen. I, it's the same exact methodology. And I think that he – well, first of all, I mean – this is something that I'm writing about in the book, and this is actually an idea that somebody had planted in my head 30 years ago. 
But um, a friend of mine who was also a Kirby fan said, you know, look at the way his art just changed overnight. I think he dropped acid. And I was like, well, I don't really see him dropping acid, but I could see him being dosed with acid, like, say, when he's going to a VA hospital on Long Island uh, to be treated for PTSD or shell shock, as it was called right, back then. Right. Uh, and what were they doing back in the mid '60s when all of a sudden Kirby's artwork became completely psychedelic? Yeah, but uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Think of it this way: if you think of Kirby as a high, hyperdimensional resonator, a radio receiver, mm-hmm. and you drop mm-hmm. him into the milieu where all the occultists behind and around Hitler were feverishly doing their thing. The height of their power. They sent expeditions all over the world, including to the place where Aldrin said there's horrible evil, the Antarctic. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. he resonated with that, if if you know, I can think of the movie now where he can't screen it out and internalizes it to match what he already is looking at. In other words, I think you're discounting the idea you put him in the right petri dish, he's gonna pick up something that nobody else could have picked up. Mm. Well, all I'm saying is that he was um, a comic book artist, okay? And I've spent my life around comic book artists, and they are all – the good ones are very strange people. Have you talked to Neil and, Adams? Oh, I, I did talk to Neil Adams. I <laughs> Neil Adams was notorious back when I was a kid because, um, you know, they would have portfolio reviews where you'd go – Right, you know, show your your artwork and so on, and I watched Neil Adams make more people cry, grown men cry, than I care to count, because <laughs> he would just sit there and brutalize these people. But but let me tell you something about Neil Adams. I'll tell you a story that you might not have heard about Neil Adams. Um, I've had him on the show a couple of times, you know. Okay. Uh, well, let me just tell you a story about Neil Adams. Um, you know, this is you're in my you're in my Ballywick now. This is my neighborhood. Um, Neil Adams ran. He quit comic books in the early '70s to start a studio called Continuity Associates, and Continuity Associates did storyboards for commercials. And he had a bunch of comic book guys, you know, come in and and work, and you know, it was like a shop. Well, what had happened is that um, I'm not going to mentioned the man's name, but he had cooked a plate of hash brownies and oh. put them in the refrigerator at Continuity Associates. And Neil was pulling an all-nighter, right? And there was no food in the studio. Neil was pulling an all-nighter, as you know, people in advertising do. Right. So he said, um, oh, gosh, this all, all that I have here is these brownies in the refrigerator. No way. He baked the brownies so he knew what they were, right? No, no. Neil did not Oh, so so he just found them. He and there's food. Yes, that was the only food in the studio at the time. Uh, He had no idea because he had no experience uh, that this artist, um, again, whose name I will not mention, but uh, (laughs) was very much a hippie, you know, at that time, uh, long hair, ponytail, and so on, um, had cooked uh, hash brownies, and Neil ate an entire. you know, pans worth oh of hash brownies God. in the course of the night. And everybody shows up the next morning and Neil is on the couch and um, he is uh, in major psychological and psychic trouble. <laughs> you know how we yeah. know this is real? Because there's a major columnist of the New York Times who flew to Colorado when the Colorado legislature legalized 
you know, uh, recreational marijuana. And she went to a, a, a cannabis store, bought a whole bunch of edibles, went back to her hotel. No one told her only take a little and wait, you know, an hour or so. She ate them all and they found her in a fetal position in her hotel room the next morning. She recovered, but it's an identical story. Yes. Well, here's the thing. THC, when it's ingested, uh, becomes a completely different chemical compound than when it is smoked. Now, when it's ingested, and you're particularly in certain forms, um, it's much more like LSD. It's much more of a very serious hallucinogenic hmm. experience. And Neil had ate, had eaten um, uh, an entire... Oh, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's like deep radar as opposed to a surface scan. Yes, uh, he had... Um, you know, it was meant for a party. I mean, this artist had, had made these brownies for a party. So this was supposed to go, you know, to a number of different people. I don't know how many brownies there were exactly, but like I said, it was an entire pan full of brownies. Well, for a party, it was a plateful, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, oh, my then, God. And then after that, from that point forward, I never wondered about Neil Adams. Because uh, Neil Adams, um, brilliant, 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 brilliant artist. I mean, one of the greatest in, in the history of the business, um, completely insane. And one of the biggest assholes that um, had ever well, walked the face can, of the earth. Well, he can be a little arrogant, but you know why I got onto him and why I, I revere him to this day? He's been oh, championing the expanding earth planetary absolutely. model for 30 years now, for decades. Absolutely. And he's absolutely right. Yeah, oh, I mean, I, and he's not confined really, it just to the earth. He's looked at the whole solar system. He's, he's, he's absolutely right about the hyperdimensional physics behind the planetary system. And he's the only guy out there talking about it. The only guy. A cartoonist championing the work of the geologist in Australia, whose name escapes me. But Neil has done a brilliant job of showcasing. Uh, George had me on. Nori had me on one night. Uh, that's how we met. He brought me on to be a surprise guest, as he does from time to time. And Neil and I hit it off, and he's been on the show a couple of times. Yes, he can be he passed arrogant. Away, though. You know he passed away, right? No, I didn't know. Yeah, no, I mean, Neil passed away. Uh, um, that's such a shame because his time is coming. Oh, well. Hey, a brilliant man. I, listen, I always say that genius and madness share a driveway. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's, that's my motto. A uh, brilliant, brilliant man. I, I, I won't put anything past him. I mean, and he was doing top-notch work uh, up until his death. I mean, it w the stories that he was writing were insane. But see, now I, mean, I know where he got his conduit to the expanding planetary model. Well, can I tell you something? I mean, this is how I've been cracking all these codes using the stars. Uh, you know, Masonic and biblical codes and all these kind of things. It's visual training. Okay, so Neil was trained visually, right? And he was trained to um, perceive things visually that most people can't, okay? And, and not only that, but to, to form patterns. Because being an artist, right, is, uh, is about pattern recognition, uh, ultimately. Yeah, it should be. It's, it's, it's memory and pattern recognition. Yeah, but don't, so you, Neil, think, don't you think his overdose mainlining a, a, a hyperdimensional reality directly into his fevered brain lying there on the couch had a huge impact on his whole vector, his trajectory, his everything. Oh, absolutely. And I, this is what I'm, but this gets back to what I was saying with Kirby. I mean, I believe 
I mean, I can just show you. Uh, you can just see literally overnight, like from one issue of Fantastic Four to the next, all of a sudden it's just oh. it's just a completely different thing. It's just everything is pulsating and energy and do we have a date? Cosmic. Uh, yeah, it's uh, mid-1965, around there. Oh. I, it was basically when, so the thing that sort of marked this is that he, he did, this is when he created Galactus and the Silver Surfer. I don't know if you're familiar with those characters. Yeah, of course. But um, that's sort of... And the Fantastic what, Four and on and all X-Men. I mean, it's, it's, it's stunning. All the, yeah, I mean, he was incredibly gifted. But, you know, his work just... Uh, it just exploded. And again, I mean, knowing that he had an extremely traumatic wartime experience, uh, it's very hard to pin down, but I think he and his um, squad were captured by the Germans at one point in time. And um, he was sent home with with frostbite. Uh, They they thought he might have to have his legs amputated. So his wartime experience is extremely traumatic. And it just seems like a very tough. So he was a prisoner of war of the Germans. Well, it wasn't necessarily prisoner of war. It was kind of a situation where they were captured and they escaped. He didn't end up in a camp or anything. Um, But they they I. From what I understand that some of the people in his squad were um, like interrogated, you know, given the whole third degree by the um, <clears throat> the SS and so on. Right. Or the, um, but anyhow. Um, well, he's basically a spy. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, reconnaissance is just a, a fancy word for spying. Yeah, of course. Um, so I, I think it's very, very highly likely that he was uh, given a dose of LSD uh, or several when he was being treated for PTSD, a.k.a. shell shock in the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. And if you just look at his artwork, it literally changes overnight. L- literally overnight. It's just astonishing. Astonishing. So something happened to his connection. The, mm. the gate was open. Some, like with, with Neil. Mm-hmm. He had that's an, exact, uh, he, that's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. He had a huge epiphany. And then when the channel was open, God knows what came through. Remember, I've said on the show many times... You know, we're living in this false reality. The real reality is the Marvel tentpole movies. That's really what's been going on. We're just a sideshow. Well, you know that I worked on, uh, well, I created artwork for those movies for 15 years of my life. I'm not surprised. Okay, (laughs) we are at the literal, we are at the top of the hour. So hold it there. My guest this morning is um, Chris Knowles, our resident symbologist, mythologist, pattern recognizer it's all about the patterns and again the reason it's symbolic well I'll I'll tell Chris a little story on the other side of the top of the hour you are on the other side of midnight my name is Richard C. Hoagland and we're going to expand from the Titanic and the extraordinary symbolism attached to this incredible weird catastrophic soap opera that is still gripping so many people when we return
other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode. Two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. I mean, it's no kidding. Suppose the reality that we think of as real, as normal, as the way it's supposed to be, is in fact a deliberately created artificial construct of us being as a species put in a bubble 113,000 years ago as judged by the pyramids at the southern end of Jezero. And the movement of the star Sirius across the sky down through precise alignment over 100,000 years ago with the belt stars of Orion. And suppose, as I've said many times, that all this incredible sudden interest in tentpole movies and Marvel universes and things that are absolutely phantasmagorical is in fact a reflection through the mirror of the reality to which we as a species, as individuals, have been for God knows how long denied. And now, because of a unique nodal point in the physics, there is this window, this bridge, this opportunity to gaze through or receive information through the portal between dimensions that gives credence to the idea that we're living in a fictional created reality. Chris, am I nuts here? No, you're a Gnostic. Ah. Uh, that's just textbook Gnosticism that you just recited there. So, uh, you know, very appropriate since I was just at that Astronosis uh, conference, you know, where I talked about the Archons and so on. So, uh, no, you're, um, you're right on board. Uh, you, your thinking is uh, completely um, consonant. With the ancient novels. Well, I've had a very unique experience for the last four years. It's been horrible, tragic, you know, the kind of life I would never wish on anyone when Robin died. Mm-hmm. But she's not gone. Remember that mm. scene in The Wrath of Khan where Kirk and Spock are on opposite sides of the glass because he has saved the ship but killed himself with the radiation? And, mm-hmm. what, and what do they do at the end? They put their hands up and make the gesture the crossed finger, widened finger gesture, the Live long Vul- and prosper, the sir. Vulcan mind, you know, the Vulcan symbol. Mm-hmm. Two consciousnesses so aligned as we've seen, but on opposite sides of the glass. 
That's what's been happening between me and Robin for 4.4 years. Mm. And she's left all kinds of messages. She left one just the other day. In, uh, she, these are physical objects that are left in my path for me to find. Documents with the pages rolled back so that I look at one particular page. Or a physical item like a special brand of perfume that literally flies off a shelf and crashes into the wall when I'm reading in the middle of the night a short story by Isaac Asimov about how people are destined to be with each other through reincarnations. Mm-hmm. And bang, there it is. And I look up its history, and it's all about connected between lifetimes, between dimensions. I could go on and on and on and on, but the, the bottom line thing is, David Sri, you mentioned him earlier, Mm-hmm. has had a similar experience with his departed wife, Crystal, who died uh, like a year and a half ago or something like that, relatively recently. Mm-hmm. On the 591st day from her death, mm. she came to him and left a set of crucial clues. Mm-hmm. And we did a show the other night. We're going to run it again tomorrow night because it's intimately connected to tonight's conversation and in this current environment, information overload, people don't get things if they only hear them once or even twice. So you're going to hear it all again because 591 is the mirror image, Chris, of 195, 19.5. Mm. Yeah, I picked up on that right away, sir. And just – well, I didn't. It took David last weekend hitting me over the head. Uh, when he sent this to me, I didn't, I didn't get it. I didn't resonate. But – a few days before we did the show, Robin left another message in the form of a document, which she had taken handwritten notes about water problems here in the Southwest caused by Kirtland and chemical seepage and motor oil and high octane mm. fuel, jet fuel, and all that. And at the top of the page on the reverse side from the Air Force handout, in her handwritten notes, she said, began in 1950, mm. 19.5. Mm. So I know that she's out there with mm. her hands pressed against the glass trying to send symbolic images because apparently the bandwidth is so narrow between these dimensions that you can only send pre-coded information a la Emily Dickinson, tell all the truth but tell it slant, And so you have to do a pattern match on this side of the mirror, going back to what's a Jezero, to connect with people who are as alive and and breathing and living as we are, except they're not here. And Robin has been in this purgatory for 4.4 years. Uh, Listen, you're preaching to the choir. I mean, I had an experience like that, uh, I guess, Seven, six or seven years ago, uh, it wasn't as, as uh, happy an experience as, as what you've uh, described. But uh, uh, believe me, um, I there's no single doubt in my mind of the reality that you're you're referring to at all. Uh, well, I, I have I, huge doubts because I'm I'm a scientist. I like empirical evidence. The fortunate thing is, how do two people who have passed somewhere communicate the same message except crystal's information is the mirror image 
of Robin's information, but they're both talking the physics, 19 points. Robin and I went around the world measuring at these ancient sacred sites with the Accutron technology, this physics. Well, you know, I, I've come to the point now that um, science to me is, is, is essentially plumbing. You know, it's just, it's just a methodology. Uh, and I believe that there is just so much, I don't, I don't, it's not even belief. Uh, I mean, that sounds like I'm wishing uh, that this was true. Uh, I, I have just absolute conviction and experience that uh, there is just so much going on uh, that science cannot uh, begin to explain because that's not science's job. I, you know, I believe very much uh, in the old, um, who was it? Uh, you know, the whole idea of um, uh, separate magisteria. Uh, who was that? The um, the uh, biologist. What was his name? He passed away uh, rather young. You know who I'm talking about. You don't uh, mean Haldane? No. Uh, he was sort of a. He was in with. It's not important. Who did he hang out with? He hung out with like people like uh, Sagan. Oh, recently. So, okay, so he's no, no, no. I mean, this is this is in the '80s, and I believe yeah, he was that recently. I mean, we're talking okay. hundreds of thousands of years. That's recently. Yeah, right? okay. You know, part of <laughs> that, know, part of know, that, he, he, part of that talk, crowd, that cohort. Yes, but it's like, um, you know, that science and non-science should respect each other's space. Let's just say. And uh, yeah, I, but I, the, I, the, the two didn't used to be separate. Remember no, this they, idea of demarcation were. between occultism and science as a separate modality never the twain shall meet is a recent invention invented as a cover-up because you can use scientific tools to prove this incredible reality Mm. no one's doing it because they're not supposed to we're not supposed to know we're in a bubble in prison we're chattel we're remember charles fort remember his the book of the damned of course where he said we're property well that's Mm. that's in in the same ballpark Someone is interfering with our collective human history, and I think it's not, it's not for our benefit. It's to keep us from rejoining the family at a larger hyperdimensional level. Well, again, like I said, I mean, this is textbook, um, textbook Gnosticism. Uh, the person who I was thinking of was Stephen Jay Gould. Oh, Stephen Gould, yeah. Yeah, the uh, what do you call punctuated equilibrium was his uh, evolutionary model, mm-hmm. meaning that you didn't have contiguous all the spaces filled in an evolutionary timeline. You had jumps. Mm. Well, the hyperdimensional model a shows that genetics on Earth does not come from random chemical reactions. It's a hyperdimensional phenomenon. Okay, mm-hmm. and b mm-hmm. it's not constant. It has jumps. It has periods where the information folds really easily, and then it has periods where information is very restricted, and I've been able to track that with Robin's communications, and people are going to love this, the bizarre behavior of her little minions, the mice. I live in a house with guests, little kangaroo mice from the southwest deserts, who do all kinds of things, including leave these trinkets rearrange stones in geometry, um, uh, you know, jump up and sit next to me, listen to the show, looking at me on the shoulders of a, a gift that she gave me some years ago, a giant cat 
because cats are involved in this genetically in the human evolutionary development of ET, you know, kind of interference. Cats and rabbits are very, very important because they're part of the same family as are mice. It's Mm. all ultimately about consciousness, multiple species as carriers, and who she can communicate with. And I'm in a unique environment where I'm not in a city. I'm in the country. I'm in an old house. And then they start doing weird, very non-mouse-like things for four-plus years. Mm. Including light pollution there, by the way. Oh, I'm in absolutely brilliant, deep, dark New Mexico skies, except for the south where Albuquerque. But if I look north and east, uh, it's absolutely incredible clear. The Milky Way is almost hot enough on some nights to burn you. It's so bright. Mm. See, I, I, you know, I, I know I'm going to get in trouble with you, <laughs> but um, I, I think that there's just some effect that that has. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, maybe it's a, just a purely psychological sort of uh, placebo effect. I'm not going to try and speculate, but I do think that there is a, a, a tremendous power there. And I, I think that the kind of events and, and the experiences that you're having, for some reason, I think they are more common in places where there's less light pollution and there's more of the influence, the stellar influence. I would no, think I would I would think it's very different. I would think it's the isolation. I haven't been off this reservation out of this house really for four years. Mm-hmm. I'm all by myself. My closest neighbors call me and come over occasionally and drop off mail and stuff. But I'm basically here by my lonesome to communicate with whoever wants to communicate. And the pattern, I mean, I've got artwork, guys, artwork. Yeah. Like the other day, I have a uh, – am, am I boring you? Not at all. Why do you <laughs> okay. think you're boring? Well, what's his name? The, the great doctor on the West Coast used to ask that when he did his telephones, okay? Brilliant genius guy, Gene Scott. Remember Gene Scott? Of course. Oh, he was, he was so far ahead of his time. Anyway, he would look at the audience – and, you know, he'd say, am I boring? Because he read from all these incredible ancient texts. He wasn't just a Christian evangelist. He was a multidisciplinary communicator trying to relate to his flock much bigger visions, much bigger realities. And he would look and stop and basically pitching for money and saying, am I boring you? Let me know. Call on the phones. Let me know if I'm boring you. And he would not read further, you know, suspend the story until the phones lit up. And he got a bunch of money. Anyway, mm. I don't want to bore you, but she has been using these modalities under extraordinarily restricted circumstances for four years. I've asked Georgia, have you ever encountered anything like this in the literature? And I ask her like every week. She says, no, no, no. I've never heard of any. I think it's because of my unique circumstance and the signal to noise. It's like they talk about meditation. Well, I've had a lot of time to do nothing but meditate here on mm. our life, how we met, how we're not together. We should be together. This is the end game. Why isn't she here? Let me tell you a really weird – I think she was influential on in getting George to get me back on coast after seven years of being ostracized. You know how mm. I know that? Because the night that that uh, 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 Lisa Lyon called me and said, can you come on the show? And I said, well, yeah, when? She said, well, how about next Wednesday? And I said, what? Like, you know, like within two days. 
So mm. I so I was on that was so like a year ago. I was on March third, Wednesday night, literally the third anniversary of Robin's death within hours. Mm. Within hours remember she died on the third at dawn, which we measured mm-hmm. at the pyramids is when the physics in terms of the sun does blip. So she used that blip to leave. And the nurses recorded it digitally, so we know the exact time. I looked up sunrise for Albuquerque. It was exactly when she died on the third month. So third month, um, uh, uh, third day, that's 33, right? That's part of the 19.5 chain. She chose when to leave as a 19.5 message. So we then fast forward the film. I get the call from Lisa after being banned from Coast for seven years. Because of art? Well, we don't know why. It's it's a huge mystery. Art offered me another, you know, platform when George said, go away. And so I've got this show because of art giving me an alternative to, to coast. But on exactly the night of the third anniversary of Robin departing this dimension, I get the call from Lisa. And the next morning in the magic hallway where Gifts have been appearing from Robin, a la the the mice. There is a plastic bag marked with Flagler Avenue on the outside. So it's from Miami. Robin was a Miami girl. Mm. And inside, there is a beautiful pink envelope, which was a a, a credit, uh, one of these guest thingies, to our favorite French restaurant here in Albuquerque. And then there was a cassette an audio cassette, not a mini, but a micro. Uh, I'm sorry, not a micro, a mini. Um, and it was Walter Cronkite narrating You Are There, his old TV and radio show. So you got Radio, Cronkite, Miami, Robin, and our favorite. Fr- she left me a message. She's the one who got George to change his mind. Because, of course, <laughs> I need Coast. And I need Clyde and any other major media as we're in the end game now looking at artifacts which stand still and will not lie versus ufology which will lie all up and down the whole disclosure envelope because they don't want us to know. But the artifacts are an end run around the censorship and she needed me back on coast, which we know now because I've been on several times since and the audience afterwards is so laudatory of our work there's they've been so carefully paying attention when the you know what hits the rotating kitchen appliance because of whatever she did i'm back on the platforms i need to be on to bring it to the next level well like i said you're preaching to the choir sir yeah but uh, i've got data hell with the choir i've got redundant overwhelming data including i've saved all the artwork that the mice have been doing for four years. And my friend sent me a GoPro the other day. So in my copious spare time, I'm going to begin to chronologically image, photograph the evolution of the art from the mice. The other day, let me give you this example. Uh, I have a, I have a tray that I, you know, put food on in the, in the kitchen and bring into the living room where I'm going to work at the computer or look at, you know, uh, the big screen television. And I fold the paper towel over so there's a double strip at the top of the tray. And the mice in the last three weeks carved twice a heart 
in that fold. So the heart is half on the double thickness of the paper towel and half exposed to the wood underneath. So it's a heart divided in half. A broken heart, Christopher. Mm. It's not the mice. It's her. Mm. Well, I'll tell you something. Something keeps going through my mind when, when you talk about those mice, and I'm trying to figure out what it is. <laughs> I, is it like an old alchemist story or something? I, I keep thinking of the mice. If she can resonate with life forms on this side of the mirror, because I'm surrounded by these little guys. Uh, one just came here and sat and looked at me while I'm talking to you and doing the show. Mm. Literally, they're not acting like mice. They're acting like family. And in the beginning, when they started doing this stuff, they chewed the wires here in the studio. And I, of course, mm. freaked out because, you know, the microphone and the cable connected to the board and all that. They have not done that once since that one time. Because I freaked out and I said, don't have them do that. And so even though they sit on the console and they sit on the little cat and they look at me and they climb up the cables from the floor to the, to the console, they've never chewed another wire here in the studio. Mm. And that's not natural behavior. I mean, everything <laughs> they've done is by process of elimination – particularly that bag from Miami with Flagler Avenue, because Flagler Avenue was where the hotel was or I had the heart attack and she saved my life in Miami. Mm. That's why Flagler Avenue is important. And what, I, year, what year was that? I'm just, just as an aside, what year was that? I, when I almost like, died? It was like 2010 or something? It was, it was 2000, um, uh, no, it was 1999, 2000. Okay, all yeah. right. The transition of the millennium. Mm. And I'd gone to Miami to look up and do work on the Miami Circle, and we wound up doing it together. And then I almost died, and she rescued me with homeopathics and vitamins, and then I got home. I'm at 6,500 feet. It's 25 years. I have not had a twinge from a heart attack that the doctors told her privately it's 50-50, he probably is not going to be here much longer. Mm. Well, I, I, I hope you um, – well, I guess since you're isolated, you probably didn't uh, partake in the mass Well, I've been looking at all, I've looked all the, of the science, you know, the, 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 the disease, the vaccines, all the controversy, all the hoopla, the malarkey, the nonsense, the insanity. And because of my situation, I don't have to make a decision. Mm, I do not have to decide until – remember, everybody wanted to solve this problem like day before yesterday. And instead of taking five or ten years to develop a vaccine, Trump and his minions did it in a year, give or take, right? Well, yeah. do, you, do you think that trials can be shortened by that amount without there being collateral damage? No. Absolutely not. You, you cannot have nine women – have a baby in one month. And that's no, what everybody's I, uh, been expecting. No. So I'm in a position where I can wait and see what the numbers look like when the hysteria goes away and real data is published and real long-term tracking and all that. And there are, there are some uh, uh, prophylactics, which I could use that are not vaccines, uh, to if I 
if I inadvertently picked it up from the mail carrier or whatever, but I'm pretty careful. And so far, you know, cross fingers and knock on wood, I'm sitting here on this mountaintop connecting to the whole world, and I even can have groceries delivered because of Instacart. Mm. Well, I, you know, it's funny because I was healthy as a horse for three years, and then my daughter moved back from Brooklyn, and then I got it. <laughs> so I got it back in February. Uh, it was not fun, but I believe me, I've had far worse. Uh, See, what I want to know flu. is why is everybody focusing on the vaccine when they should be focusing on the damn virus? Because frankly, the virus, if it was designed, and there now is an underground consensus that it was designed, and everybody thinks it's, I think the Chinese were the victims. Because the Chinese unlike anybody else, when they went to the moon with all their missions, they told the truth. And I think somebody out there, the bad guys, slapped them down hard by putting it in Wuhan as a, as a, as a poison pill to basically tell them you will never get out of line again. Because mm. we're not in a neutral situation. We've got folks running around. We've got secret technologies. We've got this gangbuster movement at warp nine toward disclosure i mean the senate is literally grappling now in the ndaa with revealing by law all the secret craft and technologies that the government has had in deep storage for over 70 years mm. that's going to totally revolutionize life on earth for the better because the the warm days up ahead are going to only get it worse unless we employ hyperdimensional fit to short circuit this soap opera like in the next year or two. Mm. And it looks like from all the independent data I've acquired, we're on track for the big, big reveal, which at the outset, and I've checked this with Rick Levine, my hyperdimensional astrologer, my curves and Rick's cross at the end of June, one year from now, right in the middle of the damn campaign for president of the United States, with a president, one of them in office, who in the Oval Office, literally in the bookshelf, has a stunning ET artifact sitting in a glass case sent over from NASA at Biden's specific request. Hmm. Well, I, um, <laughs> Like I said, I, I'm a bit more, um, I don't want to say pessimistic, but... Uh, oh, come on, you're pessimistic. <laughs> I'm well, not. Thank God, listen, I, you know... I see when, green shoots everywhere because, well, because no, the I artifacts feel, will stand still. Listen, whatever, whatever the case may be, when it comes to anything involved with the government, uh, in any level... I um, to say that I am leery is is an extreme understatement. But uh, well, if, if, if everything, if, if if disclosure, in the broadest possible sense, was limited to NASA, or the Air Force, or the Arrow Office of the Pentagon, I'd be as excuse me, incredibly you know disenchanted as you are. Mm. But I know there's a two-track system. And we're the other track, artifacts. Because when you unleash private enterprise in the solar system, a technology which, which Musk has made cheap enough, private groups and, and you know, uh, 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 you know um, what do they call that, uh, uh, 
uh, crowdsourcing can fund. I mean, you know the total price of the Indian mission to the moon that's going to verify the structures on uh, of the dome? Do you know how much they spent? I have no idea. Seventy-seven million bucks. You can crowdsource that now. Thirty seconds. Anyway, uh, we are at the bottom of the hour. Sorry for um, uh, kind of wandering off the reservation there. So let's mm. do this, and we'll get back to Chris for our last half hour very, very soon. We are poised. And again, bringing this conversation full circle, I think the Titan disaster is poised on the edge of success, and someone does not want us to succeed so they keep throwing all of these disinformation things in our path so we can't follow the through line to what's really going on. But the titanic ritual sacrifice indicates to me someone is very worried this is going to get out of hand. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Thank <laughs> you. 
And welcome back, everyone, to not the dark side of the moon, although it's close, but to the dark side of other ritual sacrifices that have kind of gone on in this same time frame that Chris and I, again, totally independently, we've looked at this stuff and we both said, what the hell is going on here for real? Chris, you want to take us to Utah? Oh, my goodness. Uh, so the Gabby Petito, Brian Laundry situation. Yep. Um, people Talk about the dark side. Ah. It, well, I'll tell you something. I followed that story, and I was following the symbolism. Of course, you know, they're going uh, Zion and uh, all these um, – very famous landmarks in the whole story of the Latter-day Saints and so on. Uh, it was never really established that they were Latter-day Saints, but there were also a number of photos that we saw with Gabby Petito posing in front of these murals of angel wings. I don't know if you've ever seen this where, you know, somebody will paint angel wings on a wall or something and people take selfies or whatever themselves with these angel wings. Now, once, you know, is happenstance, right? Right. <laughs> I, I, there's a number of these pictures. Um, and one of the the other interesting things... Remember, is, in mythology or politics, there's no such thing as coincidence. Yes. Now, one of the interesting things to me, since this film is particularly important in some of the work that I've been doing, um, is that Brian uh, Laundry was photographed reading a copy of the novel Annihilation. Now, did you see the film Annihilation? No, no, I haven't. Okay, so uh, the interesting thing about the film Annihilation is that it was uh, originally released on the anniversary of the sighting of Supernova 1987A. Oh, okay. Now, the, uh, the, if you're familiar with the story... Um, I'm not. So okay. probably other people right. are So either. Annihilation is, is a novel. Um, it's The film is much different. I'm not really interested in the novel. I am interested in the film. The film was uh, made by a guy named Alex Garland, who also did, um, more recently he did the film Men, but he also did the... Um, the film about robots, uh, <laughs> whose name escapes me at the moment. But anyhow, um, so what, what the story is... You, you don't mean iRobot? No, no, no. Okay. No. Uh, uh, Ex, Ex Machina is the name of oh, it. Oh, okay, okay. I don't know if you've seen that film. Anyhow, no. uh, but he also did a, a series more recently called Devs. And, you know, his thinking is not completely uh, on a different plane than our own. Okay, but anyhow, um, the film Annihilation, uh, some sort of, it's never fully explained what it is, but something comes in from outer space, lands in the Florida panhandle, and begins remaking the environment uh, in its own image. Um, it's a very, very interesting film. If you haven't seen it, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh stars Natalie Portman. Oh. Uh, yes, and... Um, it is uh, very quiet. Wasn't there a TV series built around? I seem to remember a, a running TV series with a, a crash landing of something in the Everglades, and there's a whole bunch of weird events and mysteries and 
you know, abductions and disappearances. And, you know, I don't remember the details at all, but it was just one of those fear porn, very negative. It was called Invasion? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that was back around, that was when everybody was trying to re- you know, do their own version of Lost. Oh, yes, yes. Mystery Box. The whole Lost puzzle thingy. Yeah, I I never liked any of that stuff. Anyhow, um, so it's a a very interesting film. Uh, It's incredibly psychedelic. Um, I I recommend it highly. Where does the Annihilation part come in? Well, That's not not a happy title. Well, in the the story... um, what happens is that it, it, this alien virus or some sort of influence, it's never really established exactly what it is because the scientists don't understand what it is, right? Um, it basically takes people over and, re, you know, annihilates the old self oh. and recreates it. But to me, I see this um, – so the whole idea of annihilation is very common in, in Buddhist mysticism. It's like hyperdimensional very- possession. Well, it's, it's it's very common in various forms of mysticism where, like, the old self is annihilated and the true self uh, emerges from that. But the fact that he was, you know, very uh, conspicuously, let's just say, he's very conspicuously seen reading this book. Um, there were a number of videos that surfaced of them having encounters with the police and so on and making these sort of, uh, you know, these... Uh, the van life type of thing. Uh, van life is when people just drive around in vans. Right, and go all right, and, and, and so. put all their stuff on you know, Twitter, or, you know, um, Ingram or whatever social media they have. Right, but the way it all played out, um, and you can go online and watch these videos, uh, I, I really have to say, and I don't want to sound insensitive in any way, but none of it rang true to me at all. Uh, it all seemed staged. It all seemed performative. Um, it wasn't necessarily what I would call particularly skillful acting either. It just seemed very staged to me. And it seemed like there was some sort of production going on here. And that these two kids, now this is just pure, I just want to establish this is pure opinion and speculation on my part. I'm not making any claim to statements of fact here. But it seemed to me, just from my vantage point, that there was some ritual taking place here. And, of course, this is the same area of Utah, same general area of Utah, where those um, those monoliths, quote-unquote, began appearing uh, at various points. Well, no, 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 no. They only appeared in, in, in Utah in that one place in that canyon, which, <clears throat> drumroll, is very close to twice 19.5. No, I believe that there were more than one, Richard. No, but they uh, were all over the world, not in Utah. Okay. In Utah, there was one, and they came a whisker away from that canyon. In fact, right. we only know what they documented, so we don't know if they actually went and visited because it was in the same time frame. And we know from satellite imagery that that monolith, which was really a a uh, 2001 uh, vertical object, except it wasn't a door, it was a equilateral triangle. Three sides in two dimensions is a tetrahedron in three. Mm-hmm. And it was almost at 19 point, a multiple of 19.5 and in a canyon filled with imagery of ancient E.T. interactions with people here on Earth. 
Mm. And Keith noticed this, again, independently from me, and we had a conversation, and then we'd done some shows on it, and I got, uh, oh, what's his name, the uh, um, under, uh, 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 sub-Earth, what, what's the, what's the well, Scott Walter, I got involved in trying to look at it, but he never went and looked. But the imagery is overwhelmingly obvious that it's a point of hyperdimensional contact, and they came within a whisker in their public statements. Who knows if they went and visited privately? And so I looked at this from the beginning. Again, separate from you, what's the real story here? Because it was so awful and tragic, and it had the aspects of a sacrifice. Mm. Well, here's the thing. It, it also felt very Mormon to me. Now, Mormonism has its completely separate I mean, there is overlaps with biblical um, symbolism and so on, but they also have their own symbols and their own language, let's just say. And, of course, you're probably familiar with the statue of Joseph Smith as a sphinx in Salt Lake City. Are you familiar with that one? When I was invited decades ago to lay out my model of Sidonia for the first time in public, I was invited to a huge ranch in Utah on the border between Utah and um, Nevada. And we literally, I had to land in Salt Lake City, was put up for the night at this local, um, I forget the name of the group. And then they, we drove out on the highway across the, the, the desert and the Great Salt Lake toward the ranch the next day and that night I did a presentation outside under the stars in the midst of some bizarre thunderstorms but as I was being driven from the airport through Salt Lake City, Main Street I noticed a series of churches along that Main Street uh, thoroughfare going north through the center of Salt Lake City and there was a Methodist church and a Catholic church and, you know, Jewish temple. And then there was the Masonic Lodge, which is the size of an entire block. Wow. And then there was the home of the Church of Latter-day Saints. All the other churches and even the lodge had lights on. The Mormon temple was absolutely dark. This dark, hulking mass at the end of an alignment of earth religions going back mm. and forward in time from real ancient you know, Hebrew all the way up to modern evan evangelical Christianity. But the one at the head of the line was the Temple of Latter-day Saints from Joseph Smith. Mm. Well, you know, as you know, there's uh, a lot of crossover with Freemasonry and Mormonism. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, And you know that one of the NASA administrators, Dr. Fletcher, was a Mormon from Salt Lake City? Well, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, there, you know, there's a lot of Mormons in the intelligence agencies and mm -hmm. so on. But anyhow, the point that I was making, and again, I could be totally off here, and I'm not making any claims to statements of fact here. But when you look at the symbolism that is just all over that story, uh, you know, you have um, like Moloch symbolism, uh, you have the angelic symbolism, 
there was a, a strange story that these two women, these two, these two uh, lesbian women that owned a bookshop or a health food store had been murdered around the same time. Um, the whole thing just seems as the whole Gabby Petito thing. Yeah, that's that's what I'm referring to here. Yeah, um, it it all just feels completely off. I mean, let's just put it that way. But I, I, I really have to say that I I feel the same way about this um, this Titan thing. And I I don't you know it could be some other influence at work here. And it's 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 also the way the media, especially these days in the, in the, the clickbait era, is framing these things uh it, you know it's very hard to <sighs> well it was an irresistible story it was two young white people beautiful goddess-like woman you know a companion partner they're they're on an adventure together and it winds up in horrible horrible tragedy and leaves this huge gaping hole like what the hell was that all about do you remember though now when I drew parallels with this situation, and I, I don't have the work uh, handy right now, but I was looking at it in relation to the Elizabeth Smart situation. Do you remember that? Yeah, story? she was she was kidnapped, and they retrieved her years later, like maybe ten years later or something. No, no, it, it was wasn't that long, but she was sort of kidnapped and sort of brainwashed by uh, this these street people um, who sort of saw themselves as Mormon prophets. But, you know, as far as the stellar symbolism, uh, she played the harp. You know, she had this, her whole uh, mien was, you know, very angelic. You know, she just came across as this, uh, like, angelic figure, like not, not fully human. And when I saw those... Well, innocent and blonde. The blonde when part saw, is crucial. Yeah, when I saw those depictions of Gabby Petito, I thought, gosh, she looks like, um, you know, she, she looks like she could be Elizabeth Smart just grown up a little. Mm. And that, again, that also got me to wonder, because I have a friend who's who grew up Mormon, uh, left the faith, and what she had said about the Elizabeth Smart thing, and I'm not necessarily even sure that I agree with her, but she had said something to the effect that, you know, there's such sexual repression uh, in these Mormon, you know, neighborhoods and so on, these communities that um, she had kind of seen that this girl had run away and sort of fell under the spell of this uh, charismatic weirdo saw himself as, you know, a biblical prophet reborn. Again, I'm not exactly sure that I agree with her. I understand what she's coming from. But when I see these people that were involved with this Titan situation, of course, the thing that, again, the thing that stands out to me the most, no pun intended, is that, you know, the Osiris phallus, because when you actually look at that thing, it looks like a severed phallus. Yep. Um, But there is such just an aura of unreality now let me just be clear here i mean well remember this ultimately goes back to bloodlines some of these people think they're directly related therefore they are sons and daughters of god and they can do anything they want and the rest of us are just chattel to be used as part of the sacrifice or you know thrown to the winds whenever the 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 real people 
you know, decide because they're the ones that have the right, you know, it's the divine right of kings in another form. Mm, that's true. But there's also, um, how, how exactly, and this ties back in what I was saying about annihilation. So what annihilation depicts in the film is that it isn't just biological changes or geological changes, is that everything is reality itself is being refracted. And, and this is why I think you really need to watch this film because I'd love to get your opinion on it. Um, but there is like a refraction effect uh, that this thing, which is called the shimmer in the film, it's not called that in the novel that Brian Laundrie was uh, filmed reading, but there is an effect where reality itself is distorted, that reality itself is changing now this is something that a lot of people are talking about now you know simulation theory and um uh gosh uh, well they're talking know. about ai being able to remake the entire world so that's why the strike is on in hollywood because writers and actors do not want to be duplicated by an intelligence that's non-human where they get no money well have you have you done any work with like chat gpt or whatever um no no i, I, I obviously it's followed crap. it it's crap. I mean, it's, it's literally, I mean, I, well, I mean, granted when I, when I was playing around with it, um, it was a little bit early on in the process and I was asking it these questions that I knew the answers to and it got most of them wrong. Um, and then I, there's been a number of articles that are, are, have been emerging on the, on the internet that are so clearly written by chat GPT. And it's like, um, yeah, but not... wait, 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 wait. There's, there are two levels of reality. There's the sanitized commercial version, and then there's the real stuff behind the scenes. Right. But it's the real stuff I... behind the scenes is freaking me out because that's what's really ultimately going to kill us. You know, well, think, here's... think of Cameron. Think of you know, Star, Skynet. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. Um, Did you ever I, see I... a movie called? Colossus, the Forbin Project. Oh, ages ago. From the 1970s. Yes, ages ago. Ages ago. Yeah, well, it was. It was. It was look, we we need to take this seriously. I've been seeing Washington doing things they never do, which is to have real hearings. They had a whole secret briefing for the entire Senate on Friday on the intelligence, deep state aspects of AI, and I think AI is going to be the the way that NASA basically comes clean in a totally politically plausible deniability fashion. Because remember, we've been at this on ruins on other planets for, what, 40 years, right? Mm-hmm. How are they going to come clean when we've got data on the record that we found this stuff decades ago? They are going to invoke AI, the magic, the created god of AI, they're actually saying it in their literature already that they will subject their terabytes of calibrated data to AI analysis. And guess what? They're going to find ruins all over the solar system and they're going to claim and 99% of people will buy it. Oh, until we had AI, we couldn't do this. And now we, and they're totally off the hook. Well, see, that to me is just, it's just, it's a combination of hype and an alibi. You know, what you're describing to me. Um, you know, oh, the alibi is, oh, well, gosh, we, we couldn't, you know, 
evaluate this information ourselves because we just weren't as smart as the AI, the almighty AI. I, I'm, uh, I am skeptical, and I think that what you're referring to, and I'm not saying I disbelieve you. I'm, I, I very much believe that they're doing these things, but I think that they're doing these things to um, sell a, a, a line of, uh, of crap. To the, uh, to the public. It's plausible deniable. Look, if NASA comes out and says there are ruins all over the solar system, people are going to say, well, hell, we've given you billions and billions. Why didn't you tell us 30, 40 years ago? Mm. And they will be, remember, we're in a political jungle where now everybody is up for impeachment, for, you know, uh, revotes, for dismissal. You know, everybody's pointing fingers. We're incredibly polarized. The mm-hmm. others are not just mm-hmm. the others, they're the enemy. How does NASA get out from under being the enemy? Because it's going to claim with plausible deniability, well, until we develop this technology, we couldn't see the forest for the trees. Mm. And politically, most people will buy it. And it's great because we need to get beyond the trees to get to what the damn libraries are going to tell us. Right, right. Um, I, I think that the methodology shouldn't at least on on our end should not include ai though i think there are much better ways of ascertaining this information than through um through these programs i I just don't trust them i don't trust the people who are making them uh i don't believe the hype i I think there's a tremendous amount of hype wait 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 wait. there was a spanish researcher a few months ago maybe like a year ago which is bc compared to where we are now politically AD. Mm-hmm. And he actually wrote a program, an AI program, and subjected NASA imaging to it to see in his paper if the the software, the algorithms, were better suited to find uh, intelligent patterns on other planets. Does that sound familiar? And he found on series in the NASA data, an astonishing architectural uh, artifact. Looks like a damn square with a triangle right next to it. (laughs) And the paper and the news coverage of the discovery completely said an example where AI had a stunning failure because it saw something where it's just noise. In other words, politically, they completely discounted, including the scientist himself, the results of his own damn data. Why? Because it wasn't politically time yet. Mm. Now it is. Mm. And we have no idea what they have behind the scenes. Chat GPT is a pale echo of the real science and engineering, which is moving, according to my sources, at warp nine. Well, I'm going to believe it when I see it. You're going to see it in the next few months. Guaranteed. And nobody saw a 2000 Space Odyssey where the artificial intelligence killed off the crew. Yes, thank you, Keith. Thank you, (laughs) Arthur and Stanley. We're trying to be a cautionary tale decades ago about what? Hiding E.T. And remember Brookings. This is all about Brookings. It's how do we get us to rejoin the family without going crazy in the process. 
and there are positives and there are negatives and there are enemies and bad guys and black hats. And I think they're trying to surround the truth with such a miasma of fear porn that most people will look away rather than embrace what's going to be somewhere on a screen. Well, I've been really struck by the uh, indifference that seems to be greeting a lot of this information. Um, I think that people today, kids today, um, don't have, let's just say, a structured vision of reality. They're used to video games. They're used to everything being, you know, fluid and negotiable, everything being unfixed. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. I agree. you You know, older people ourselves grew up in a world where like this is the way it is this is the truth this is this that's is the why and this we've got we've got basically uh, about about two minutes here that's why i'm looking at musk and the starship and the dear moon campaign and the nine artists which all have huge followings when they look out those windows after being taught by us what to look for and how to photograph it and I'm going to talk to some details on this next Saturday because the mm-hmm. Indians are doing it on the current mission. The Indians are doing what I recommended months ago mm-hmm. on this program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Once that happens seconds. with all these independent um, artists with eyeballs and iPhones and Twitter, that's going to be where people are going to lock in and pay attention because they're, they're heroes, they're heroines, they're artist icons are going to be telling them, totally separate from government, oh my God, look at what was left on the moon. And the party begins. Mm. Hey, I want to thank you so much for being yourself, for coming back. (laughs) We're going to have to do this again really, really soon because the symbolism is only going to get better or worse or increase or whatever, and we're going to be on top of it. Thank you, Chris Paul, our resident symbologist. Until uh, uh, next week, tomorrow night, we're going to rerun the David Sarita Designer Solar System Show. But you got to pay attention to the numbers. So until next week, same time, same bad channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.